Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our great white way, some making a giant splash, some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a dear friend, uh, first time on the pod as a guest, although mm-hmm. she did have a cameo about two years ago mm-hmm. uh, in my radio play. Uh, that was two years ago? Well, it'll be two years in December, so oh, no, okay, a year okay. and a half, really. Panic setting in. I was, I was rounding up by like five months. <laughs> Nervous. Uh, woof. Oh, I guess... No, it'll it'll still be like not quite two years when this comes out. But anyway, my dear friend Amanda Hawkins. Hi. Hi, Mandy. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. So we have a great setup here. We have some wine. You brought a good snack. We have food coming so we can luxuriate. Because what motherfucking musical are we motherfucking talking about motherfucking today? Cats. Cats. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, practical cats, malactical cats, vegetal, hepatorical cats, cats, political cats, l- uh, so, uh, philosophical cats, habit, habit, cats. cats. Pretty much, those are the lyrics. What those was, are the lyrics. So when we used to work together at um, a restaurant back in the day, and we were trying to think of the lyrics for this so- for the opening song of Cats, and we couldn't think of them. We basically did our own, but it wasn't like naming the cats. It was just like, no. What, what would we? What would we do? I mean, essentially, what we just did thirty seconds ago. Yeah, but it was like, look at the cats. cats. Oh, oh, there, there are, are the cats. cats. There are the. Yeah, it was more like third person. It was like, yeah. yeah. It was like being an audience. I, I was gonna say it's the audience perspective of cats, which yeah. Yeah, and then just like from there, just kept on improvising. But why are they cats? There are so yeah, many cats, cats. Uh, and then it's like. But also sometimes that feels like how Cats is done. Yes. Did you watch all of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? 
Ooh, uh, I think up to the the most recent season, and I also did not see the movie that okay. they did. I watched the final season and the movie within the last like six or seven months because I kind of fell off of it. And then, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. As you know, things happened in the world where we had a lot of time and yeah. needed a lot of things to watch. I don't know what you're talking about, but that sounds great. I'm glad you could catch up on Thank some stuff. Thank you so much. But in the final season, uh, Titus Burgess uh, in the show Titus Andromedon ends up making his Broadway debut in Cats because he decides to storm the stage one day in Cat Regalia after having seen the show being like I can do better than any of these guys and then after the show everyone's like congratulations you are one of the few that's cracked the code no one wrote Cats it's just people who come on stage one <laughs> and day and just do the show yeah, we improvise it every night I thought I thought like in the earlier seasons that's like no, I know he works at like Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. And then what's the first show that he does? He auditions for Spider-Man, Too yes. Many Spider-Men. And he doesn't, <laughs> I don't, I can't remember if he books it or not. Um, I think he does. Yeah, but. like I, at the, That's like the tail end of the first season. But for some reason, he doesn't get to perform it. Maybe they get shut down or he got injured. Uh, the like big break he gets is going on the cruise with um, Deanne Warwick. Sorry, Dion Warwick. Um, I don't know. Played I, by Maya Rudolph, by the way. I, yes, da, yes. And she was like, Dietos. <laughs> Dietos. <laughs> I don't know why I had this vision, because I certainly did not watch last season, mm-hmm. but I have this vision in my head of already seeing that. But that also, I think your description is just like, I can just picture it so well. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, but also, you know, this show, this Cats thing, has permeated the pop thing. culture since it came out. Mostly, yeah, mostly as the butt of the joke. And so, so many people think they know cats and then they see it and they're like, oh, I don't know cats. I mean, that's kind of how I find myself in this seat today, which I do. (laughs) I I was saving this. I kind of brought it up, which was just to say, how dare you (laughs) invite me to uh, speak on your show, uh, perhaps about one of the very few musicals I've had like previously no real relationship with which is something to explore which yeah. we'll talk about like why i didn't feel can i i'm sorry did you want to discuss blood brothers N- no i also don't <laughs> there you go so shut the fuck up <laughs> but i was just like wow because i you know listening to the show sure. i was like wow everybody really knows like jimmy talking about roadshow emily talking about sunday but jimmy she, did not know roadshow. it's fine it's fine i just was like i'm gonna get on this show and i'm gonna be like yeah i have like my bfa mm-hmm. is gonna be revoked it's not like it's been in use anyway mm-hmm. but you know like sure these things do happen these things will do happen so before today, mm-hmm. what was your relationship with cats? Um, pretty much like have seen clips from the filmed version, mm-hmm. never fully watched it through. I grew up, my dad is a big fan of musical theater, so he introduced me to a lot of shows at a very young age. Cats was not one of them. I wonder why. No, Cats would totally not be up his alley. I don't think so. It just wasn't part of like my vernacular. Uh, However, growing up with and doing theater as a kid and being part of like community theater and going to camp for theater there, I definitely encountered people who were fans of the show. It just like kind of went right over my head where I was like, yeah, I can see the appeal. The costumes are fun. I have zero interest. It also didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, to be honest with you, I kind of don't know why I never 
dug more into it because it's on the surface level it seems like something i would be totally into i'm like a show where people just are cats like yeah at least like the intrigue of it yeah yeah no i was never really intrigued i kind of was like nah no it's fine Mm. maybe it was because like the point of entry of being like you have to be a really great dancer it wasn't like a show that i was like one day i will aspire and be in this like there's Mm. just no way one day I shall be Bumblerina. Unless you want me to be like Gus, which I can do. I can like come out on uh, and just shake. Oh, like that'll be great. More wa- on that. More, more on, on that, that later because I have lots of em- emotions about that. As but, do I. Don't we all? Um, but yeah, no, I would say so. I never really, I never saw it. I know a lot of people my age that was like they're actually their first Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of my friends who now do theater were like, Cats was my first show. And I was like, nah. No. Well, so you're a New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. We're 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 both kids. Right. Who... So I would have had the opportunity to go, and yeah. I didn't. So okay. Here's my take on this with you, because also you were. It closed in September of 2000, so you would have been seven. I would have totally, yeah. You would have been seven when it closed. I still would have been the right age to like. Yeah, I think you were right at the beginning of the age bracket that parents would take their kids to see For the sure. show. Yep. Um if you I think if you were like maybe two years older, yeah. you might have been cognizant enough to tell your dad you wanted to see it, which yeah. is what my situation was. Um... Because we have we both come from families that like theater. Yep. New and New Yorker families. Yep. Uh and we'll go into this a bit with the history of the show. Uh Cats was a phenomenon that New York theater goers, like born and bred New Yorkers we're always kind of embarrassed by the th- that they allowed it to happen. And <laughs> I find with my family mm-hmm. that was the case because everyone saw it when it came out because it was the thing to yeah, see. Yeah, of course. Everyone's like talking about it. It's so like whispers. It's like just a show about cats. The, 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 the reference I make to it is that it was truly the first Broadway musical uh, Nunsuch, which is a thing in... Huckleberry Finn. Okay. When they he and then the prince and the duke do a show in some random ass town in Mississippi where the, the way they make money is they scam everyone by saying like come see the great nun such you've never seen anything like it before. Got it. And then and they're like no women allowed because it's too provocative and it ends up being like the duke in costume and it's totally shitty and everyone feels really uh, duped, yeah. yeah, and then they, but the audience goes, "We can't let anyone know we've been fooled." So we're gonna yeah, tell yeah, everyone yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, you're like, it's great. Yep. And so I feel like when it came to New York, because it came with all this hype and all this intrigue, and again, we'll get into it a little more further in a second. But uh, all all this intrigue, all this mystery, all this hype, and people went to go see it. And then uh, there were people who genuinely enjoyed it at mm-hmm. the time. I have some adult theater going friends who saw it when it first came out, and they're like, "Oh." With that original company, like, it truly was something fascinating. And then, of course, it became what it was. Yeah. But on the other end of that, you had people who were so mystified by it. And like, what is it that I'm not getting? Have I been totally fooled? And they're like, I guess I'm just going to tell people it's pretty good. Especially because, like, it's got this huge, like, $10 million advance. I paid 50 bucks for it, which 1982. Oh, my God. I know, 1982. 50 bucks for a theater ticket in New York. But so when I was a kid, I got super into Cats around 8 or 9. Okay. Because that's when the VHS came out, the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was super into it. I really liked the music. I still like a good deal of the music. Whether I like the show or not anymore is another 
another story, which we'll get into. Yes. But I do think objectively some of the music is still very good. But I was so intrigued by it. It was running. I really wanted to see it. I had some friends who had seen it. And no one in my family would, family would take me. <laughs> this is a family that has supported me through coming out. This is a family that has supported me when I said I wanted to go to school for musical theater. Yeah. That I wanted to go to theater camp and still let me go to theater camp even yeah. when my high school grades were dropping. And they were like, well, this makes him happy. We can't punish him. 10-year-old me, they refu- no one would let me see it. Wow. And so finally, it was my uh, grandfather's wife, Fran. She, Fran, finally was like, you know what? I'll I'm take the blood him. and I'm taking him. And, oh boy, okay. Should I talk about the experience or should I wait till we talk about the show? Wait until you talk about the show. Okay, great. I'll but talk- I wanted to say one, of, there's two other points about like my previous history with this. But that's course. Number one. I, there are an extended amount of people that I know who have pet cats named after cats from this musical. I find it unacceptable. <laughs> I I truly find it unacceptable. Sure. Like sure. like there is a really long running list where I would be like, oh, I don't I don't know cats very well, and they'd be like, my cat's name is Mr. Mistopheles, and I was like, why? Um, I named my cat Demita. Yeah, but it, that would even be better. Sure. There I mean there are names in cats. That, that have like transcended into yeah, yes our living I'll, rooms. I'll even take fucking Gus, but yeah, it's, it's, that's yeah. Sophia. Sophia's family cat name was Gus. Oh my named god, specifically after of course Sophia's Gus. family cat is Gus. Yes. So now that we have established our histories, mm-hmm. let's discuss how it is we came to have a musical called Cats. Yes, the musical Cats is based off a book of poems called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, written by English poet, playwright, essayist, and um, anti-Semite T.S. Eliot. Uh, and I don't know if this was in the original publication of that, but was at some point illustrated by Edward Gorey. Yes, uh, I had that book. Really? Yes. That was when I was sort of in my cat's phase as a kid, and I think one of my parents I was going to say somebody it. give that... To you as a gift. Yeah, because that was not, that book was not a thing in America. No, not at all. Not until after that show came out. Yeah, I was going to say it became popular after the fact. T.S. Eliot was known in America, but he was not, he did not have the crossover appeal of, let's say, um, a Charles Dickens. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He did not write much that Americans, like, can name off the top of their head. The best case scenario is he wrote a play called The Cocktail Party that won the Tony Award. And I can't tell you what it's about. It's it's a very British title. The book came about because T.S. Eliot had all these godchildren that he loved very dearly. And he would write them these letters and he would put on the pseudonym Old, uh, Old Possum. That was like his... Uh, oh, like a Lemony Smicket? Smicket? Lemony Snicket type situation. Yes, that was of. his pen name when he would Got write it. to his godchildren. And listening to them talk, they were all really young. He found a lot of inspiration from them. So the big one is he had a goddaughter, a niece, sorry, his niece, who couldn't pronounce the words poor little dog and dear little cat. So it sounded like jellical cat, pollicle dog. And so he was like pollicle dog and jellical cat. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that was the one like rumor I had heard about the origins of the show Mm -hmm. that I was going to ask you if it was true. 100% it's true. Okay, fantastic. And so he wrote these book of these uh this book of poems of cats for his godchildren that then eventually got published and because they were meant to be consumed by children they are pretty simplistic poems and they Mm -hmm. also kind of have um 
a meter to them. And he later admitted that he was listening to music of the day while writing them. So like the, the structure of classical songs of the 20s and 30s were in his head as he was writing these poems, which is why they transferred so easily to songs. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And so Andrew Lloyd Webber noticed this when he came upon the book again. So he, it was after um, Evita, either Evita had just opened on the West End or they were in rehearsals. And he was looking for... Um, a writing exercise because he and Tim Rice were kind of on the skids. They were basically like Tim Rice was really interested in sort of like just raking in the royalties of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita yeah. and Joseph, which they had written by that point. And Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber's like, I want something to do again. Give me something new to do. And he's always kind of recycled uh, writing partners. It's never been like a Rogers and Hammerstein with him. Yep. So he did not intend to turn this into a show off the bat. He really just kind of, found the book again. He was like, oh, I remember really liking this as a kid. I wonder if uh, I can put music to any of these words. They seem to chart like a song. And it'll just be a good writing exercise for me to see if I can do it. It'll get my brain stimulated. And he was pretty pleased with how they were going. Uh, The original intention was to have it be sort of like a Peter and the Wolf situation where he would compose music as a backing track to the words, which had been done before. People had done that. um, Specifically to those poems? Yes, to those poems in like the 40s and 50s. Interesting. Yeah. uh, Nothing that like took off and i and as far as i know no one ever tried to musicalize the book itself and like make it a thing or even turn any of them into legitimate songs it was like you know someone speaking at the why yeah, one yeah, of these yeah. poems and it's like well here's your like background music for it oh. so angelo rubber originally was going to do something like that and then he's like oh these are actually more read like song songs so he started to do that just off the top of his head and he got the idea to maybe turn it into a tv special for children Mm -hmm. around 1980 especially after he had just done um tell me on a sunday which is the first act of song and dance and that was like a really big hit and he's like maybe i can do it again so he called it practical cats and that was his intention and he approached camera mcintosh who was like an up-and-coming producer at that point to help him produce it camera mcintosh's like big uh producing credit at this point was the review side by side by sondheim Mm -hmm. and then a revival of oliver that would eventually come to new york and Bum. but that's which one was that by the way the one with Patty Lupin and and oh, and Ron right. Moody <laughs> the one the one that lasted two weeks oops whoopsie daisy they're like we blame the New York Times for giving us a bad review I'm like if the if the advance sale was there it wouldn't matter what the Times said you, no one wanted to see it that's all um <laughs> It's Case fair. closed. I mean, I've already discussed this in the Oliver episode, but Oliver, the stage show, is insanely mediocre. The movie is a million times better. Yeah, absolutely. Just As a, somebody who's been in that show, I, I can confirm. Just watch the movie. It is phenomenal, and it is better than the show ever could hope to be. Moving on. So something that becomes a trend that we're going to see in future Andrew Lloyd Webber shows is he did a little workshop presentation of the songs he had composed at his uh, country home, Sidmonton. It would become the Sidmonton Festival. I'm sorry, say that one more time. Sidmonton. 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 Okay, yeah. I was wondering what the correct uh, pronunciation yeah. was. I'm trying to... You were too busy... If I were being... Being Andrew. interesting. <laughs> Fuck you. I will punch you in the face. <laughs> he does this presentation at Sidmonton of the songs he's composed so far, and he invites Elliot's wife, uh, his widow, to come see it, because Elliot is long yeah, dead Yeah, wasn't by this her point. name like Veronica or Victoria? I, I think, think it's, it's Victoria. Victoria. No, Veronica. I, maybe. Is it Victoria? I think it. The Victoria that's mentioned in no, the. No, it's Victoria because that's. I, I, in, in my 24 hour encyclopedic 
<laughs> downloadable knowledge of this musical that mm. all the media I've consumed. I think her name is Victoria, and that's wh- where they put Victoria, the name for the cat. For the white cat, okay. Yep. Because I was going to say, any mention of Victoria by name in the show is to Queen Victoria. Y- yes, that yes. is correct. But who, the character... Yes. Who was Queen of England while Elliot was a child. That's correct. Yes. She she died, I think, when by the time he was like 10. So like he would, of course, connect his youth to Victoria. Well, and you can also tell that that's what they were going for in the if you like actually read the lyrics it like comes up a lot yes like so you're just like obviously this is well queen yes and we will uh discuss exactly how that kept hal prince from getting the job in just a second oh my oh yes oh do you not know this hal prince story no oh you're gonna teach me no you're just gonna like it it's a really great exchange so he does the presentation and uh t.s Eliot's widow victoria she's like you know this is great uh, she's like, I don't know how you want to do this, though. You know, he uh, T.S. Eliot used to be approached all the time by, like, Disney and a bunch of people to make them, you know, a cartoon. He never really wanted these to be, like, cutesy cats. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was like, well, what about Hot Topic? Which is not a clothing store at this time. It was an 80s, like, dance, or I guess this is, like, 1979, 1980. So late 70s, early 80s, like, dance rock band. But they're all wearing, like, leggings and leotards. And she's like, oh, he would have loved that. They're like, he would love that they're hypersexual. And so Angela Rubber's like, phenomenal. Hypersexual excellent. they shall be. <laughs> Pussy popping horny. And excellent. Excellent. So she gives him a bunch of uh, unpublished stuff that T.S. Eliot had written for the book that uh, he thought was too sad for children. One which was Grizabella the Glamour Cat and then some other stuff. And Cameron McIntosh is like, I think we should do this for the stage. And Angela Dwepper's like, okay. And they had a hard time getting people to invest in it because it was about cats. And it was called, at the time it was called Practical, Practical cats. cats. And eventually Angela Dwepper had to put out a second mortgage on Sidmonton in order to put up the majority of the finances for the show. And they got some more investments, like in small amounts from other people. They brought on Trevor Nunn from the Royal Shakespeare Company because they were like, okay, he brings a prestige to the project. Mm-hmm. Maybe people will invest now. And then Trevor Nunn got a whole bunch of shit from the theater community because they were like, the man who brought us Nicholas Nickleby is directing a commercial musical about kids? <laughs> For shame. And he would come to that again with Les Miserables a few years later, and I'll discuss that in the Les Mis episode. But he brings his team from Royal Shakespeare over. He brings uh, Gillian Lynn. He brings mm-hmm. John Napier. And he's like, look, I'm bringing my Royal Shakespeare Company people. It'll be much more interesting now, won't it? And everyone's like, no, cats is a dog. And they then cast Judy Dench, who was not an international superstar at that point. She was just a very highly respected English actress known for Shakespeare. She'd done Macbeth with Trevor Nunn. And like, look, Judy Dench is going to be in it. Judy! Judy, isn't it respectable now? And they're like, no, it's about cats. So they go into rehearsals. Oh, sorry. But actually, no, I've jumped the gun. Before Trevor Nunn, Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted Hal Prince to direct it because Hal Prince had turned Evita into a concept album that made very little sense into a stage show that made slightly more sense. Yeah. And he sends Hal Prince what he's written so far. And Hal Prince goes, Andrew, is there something I'm not getting here? Is this about Queen Victoria? And these are the worker cats. And that is about British monarchy and the class system. Is there something I'm not getting? And Andrew Lloyd Webber takes a long, painful pause. And he says, Hal, it's about cats. <laughs> and they never discussed it further. All right. And so then they go to Trevor Nunn, who's like, right, it's about cats. Yeah, for sure. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> let's I mean, you've got to applaud a group of people who have had at that point 
a certain level of success just being like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. and th- But there's also something to be said about just like how truly bonkers the idea is and how bonkers everyone thought it was at the time that you had Andrew Lloyd Webber, who had had a huge hit with Evita and with Jesus Christ Superstar, Trevor Nunn, who was highly respected, and still people- And I- Joseph at that time, too. Jo- right? Joseph had not come to America yet. Oh, when but- When Cats opened on in the UK, it had not opened in America yet heard um it had opened in the uk though so yeah but in the uk yes joseph was known and then you know trevor nunn who was highly respected for the real shakespeare company judy dench and still people were like no absolutely not but then at the same time you you know we have those famous stories people go i mean have you heard what steve is writing these days with hal directing a barber who slits throats and turns them into meat pies i don't care if angela lansbury sign me up i don't want to invest in that stupid piece of shit you know we we love to hear these kind of stories which is um why I'm a little perturbed by some stupid people's responses to um, <laughs> a bit of rumored casting in an upcoming revival. Mm. We all have our doubts, but for people to be like, oh, clearly it's the worst. I'm like, hey, remember when everyone uh, said Natasha Richardson could never do cabaret? And Ca- then she literally like immortalized for that performance. Pissed all over the stage and told us all to eat it. And we yeah. did. When everyone was like, Kelly O'Hara can't belt in pajama game. And then she did and got Tony nominated. Yeah. Kelly O'Hara and the King and I won a Tony. Just things like that. Like, we love to have those stories. So I always remind people. I'm like... Yeah, an underdog. A classic underdog. An an undercat, you might say. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I have to go. Get ready. Something just came up. I have to go. Oh, no. Something suddenly just came up. (laughs) So... They go into rehearsals and everyone just all the ca- they had a hard time casting it because it was a very dance heavy show and the West End still has trouble sometimes with this kind of stuff of casting like true triple threats and in 1980 they're like holy shit we don't have a lot of triple threats this is the first dance heavy British born musical mm-hmm. and so they had a lot of, a lot of trouble casting it they finally do and everyone was sort of like I, ca- I can't really be about cats right like it's got to be a metaphor for something and then they all got into rehearsal and they're like oh it is about cats. Um, someone in the cast uh, I was reading with the original British company, they like were in rehearsals and they were like just doing cat exercises for the first week. And everyone was like, is this really about cat? Like everyone th- thought it like, was surely real. there's a plot. Yeah. Like, surely like we're getting to the point where the plot will be revealed to us. Like surely they're just there's working out. The- yeah. Yeah. Or like, it's like, oh, we're early in the process. Cause mm-hmm. back then it was just like, we start rehearsals, but we don't have a second act here. It's like, they're going to reveal to us what, what they're the- going for. Yeah. And then just no. Yeah. As I said, they go into rehearsals. Everyone's like the flying fuck is this. Uh, a couple of problems ensue. They still don't have a plot, and Trevor Nunn is like, we need to have something resembling a plot. We need some kind of through line and emotional catharsis. So they come up, they go back to the Grizabella Glamour Cat, which is who Judy Dench is playing, and they're like, okay, she's going to be our emotional catharsis, but we'll figure out exactly how in a second. And then they find a, a poem by T.S. Eliot that uh, I don't think it's in the original book as well, called The Jellicle Ball, where he discusses how... Uh, the Jellicle Cats and I think the Pollicle Dogs just rip it off, girl. I'm trying. They get together <laughs> once a year under the Jellicle Moon and one of them gets to go to the... He- they they get into a hot air balloon over the Russell Hotel and go to the heavy side layer, which is Kitty Cat Heaven. Did you know that that's actually apparently uh, a real... Hotel? No, not the hotel. The heavy side layer is actually part of a name. It was like named... It's an atmospheric point. Of the clouds? Of the of the clouds, of our of our sky. I did not know that. So it is it actually has a 
a history of like a, a literal reference. So perhaps T.S. Eliot was like, yeah, when you reach that point of the atmosphere, mm. you've transcended. I kind of like shit like that, where it's it includes real things in a way that that I don't know. It's, I it's learned how... about science from learning about cats. So and I learned about cats by being friends with a straight girl. So <laughs> uh, Trevor Nunn's like, great, this Jellicle ball shit. That's going to be our through line. They're all together. They're having a ball and they're going to figure out who goes to the heavy side layer. And Trevor Nunn's whole attitude when directing the cast on the West End and on Broadway was like, the way you want to look at the audience is like, we're doing our thing and you kind of just have crashed our party. But fine, I guess sit there and we're going to like carry on with what we're doing. It was, so it was not super inviting. It was more like you're a spectator, which which is actually a really fun approach. Because if they were too inviting, audiences would be like, eh, you're a little eager. But it's like, I guess sit there while we do our things. But like, you can't really join. Um, I mean, that's how cats are. Yeah. It's very much a cat attitude. So... They're figuring out the plot. They're figuring out the order, all this good stuff. And then Judy Dench snaps her Achilles tendon a week before they're due to go into the theater. And they're scrambling. And she was covering Grizabella and the old Gumby cat. And it was during the tap number that she snapped mm. her Achilles tendon. They go, fine. Uh, that part's no longer going to be doubled. Her understudy's going to go on and play the part. We need to find a Grizabella. They call up Elaine Page. She of the Avita fame. Which I actually want to take this moment to apologize to our listeners. When Jonathan Hoover and I recorded Avita, the only audio that was made available to us of Elaine Page was the London cast highlights album and some bootlegs from some point in the run where she was not in her best voice, plus the Olivier performance or whatever it was called at the time because it wasn't called the Olivier's. And we both had mentioned on the episode that we were underwhelmed by her vocals. Since that episode, audio has come out of her later in the run of the entire show. And my God, does she sound incredible. It's not quite Patty level. Patty's still number one. Mm. But like Elaine Page skyrocketed from like my number nine Evita to my number two. Wow. Overnight. And same with Jonathan. So Jonathan and I both would like to apologize to our listeners who are Elaine Page How about apologies to Elaine Page? She's doing fine. Apologize to Elaine Page. You apologize to Elaine Page. Listen, she Elaine, needs to- I'm so sorry for Matt's behavior. She needs to apologize for her performance and follies. That's what she needs to apologize oh! for. Excuse if me. If I can apologize, she needs to apologize. Wow. This is healthy. It's a codependent relationship you have with Elaine Page. Oh, absolutely. No, I adore her. Um, She's she's my second favorite, Grizabella. She's my second favorite, Florence. She's always my second favorite. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of second favorite. Listen. It's good to be in second. I'll take silver. Absolutely. Especially when you're behind Judy Kuhn. Like, come on. Like That's fair. I'll take second after Judy Kuhn. Anywho, they get Elaine Page. She comes in. They're like, by the way, your big song, Memory, uh, we don't really have a lyric for it. They bring in Tim Rice to try out a lyric. They don't like it. They bring in Don Black. They don't like it. Finally, Trevor Nunn's like, I'll have a crack at it. And he uses uh, the poem by T.S. Eliot, uh, Rhapsody of a Windy Night, as his inspiration. That's the lyric that goes in. It kills. The show opens to kind of like pretty decent reviews. There, one reviewer literally says, Cats isn't perfect. Don't miss it. And That's kind of nice. Yeah. It's pretty much like sums up my thoughts on the show as well, or at least it at that time of its life. Becomes a very big hit, like pretty quickly. The Schuberts ends up taking it. The story that I have on that is um, Bernie Jacobs of the Schubert organization flies over with his wife and their grandson to go see it because they had been told it like kids have really liked right. it. Right. And there hadn't really been a kids show on Broadway 
in a while. There was Annie at that time, but but, but it was really like just Annie. And Annie also wasn't a Schubert show. Also, when you want to invite me to talk about Annie, we can talk about this. I don't think Annie is a, is a show for kids. Annie's mm, it's you both. Get, mm, I think Annie is it though. I think when Annie is done really well, I think that adults tend to enjoy it more than the kids. Fair. Um, because Annie is very cynical and acidic, which makes it so good. But people don't realize that because they try to play up for the kids more than well, the adults. Well, there's also like legitimate history being referenced there. And kids yeah. are like, what? What is a new deal? Why is this guy in a wheelchair? What's well, a Democrat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're exploiting a child for a literal like political advertisement. Sounds mm-hmm. good. Oh, it's great. So they go over to see it and they go to see the show and they're like, I don't get it it's weird but their grandson loves it and he's like not a theater kid and they go back to the hotel and they're still talking about it and the grandson's like can we go back tomorrow and see it and they're like if he wants to see it this bad like there's got to be something here so they do go to see it but they can't get a ticket so like they just sit in the aisle while the show is happening and their seven-year-old grandson's like totally into it stuff. wow the west end in the 80s was a lawless place to be you could mm-hmm. just sit in the aisles they used to do that in new york sometimes Patty Lapone likes to talk about she saw a chorus line in the aisle of the public theater when it was still downtown. Chic. Mm-hmm. Bohemian, if you will. So bohemian. That's how you know you're a hit. If Patty Lapone is sitting in your aisle, you're a hit. Hamilton, garbage, trash, flop. <laughs> um, so they buy the rights, they bring it over to the to Broadway. Mm-hmm. The marketing for the show is like a very big reason why it kind of blew up because they did not show any images of the show of the set of the theater they would release articles about like they're gutting the winter garden they're punching a hole in the ceiling it's a you know the most expensive musical broadway's ever seen it's a huge hit in london what will it be here they cast betty buckley who was best known for eight is enough at the time and all the advertisements are just the cat eyes she didn't do drew yet Drude's after this. She was she had been on Broadway, but not since Pippin, I think. She then went off to movies and TV. She did Carrie. She did Eight. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Mm-hmm. This kind of brought her back to Broadway. And there, all the radio ads and TV ads was just like some music from the show and then the cat eyes and then the mm-hmm. announcer going, isn't the curiosity killing you? <laughs> Which honestly. We love a teaser. We It is the biggest of teasers. It is tickling your taint and then saying oh maybe oh well, my oh my yeah. have some more of your salad after i just said that thanks will do uh it has a giant advance at the time of six million dollars racks <clears> up to, <throat> racks up to 10 million by the time it opens and it does open on october 7th 1982 at the winter garden theater what happens after that uh we will discuss in just a second yes cat uh cats amanda what is Cats about? And if it takes you longer than a minute to say, you have failed. All right. Um, I'm going to try and get through this without venturing off into all the problems I have with my general understanding, because this is where it all falls apart for me, in which I want to just start shouting from the rooftops. Um, so Cats is about a group of cats that are jellical cats, and they notice there's an audience there. And they explain their pretty much their very existence to the audience. And they explain that there's a jellical ball at which and you kind of already went into this. Um, oh, I'm getting the I'm getting the hook. You know, oh, no. oh, I thought you were doing the hurry up. Get no, to the no, point. I said no. No, I was like, keep going. 
Okay, so the cats see the audience and they're like, there's an audience here. Let, let us explain a little bit about what we do because we're fucking nuts. Um, <laughs> when the moon comes up, we have this jellical ball, you see, and this old patriarch over here, old Deuteronomy, he gets to decide which of us gets to basically be reincarnated into a new life. Uh, and so we kind of have to put on um, America's Got Talent to decide who gets to be the one. Um, there is kind of a review, a talent show, if you will, of all the old bitty cats. And uh, old Deuteronomy has a soft, sm- soft spot for uh, ye old slut cat. And he's like, you know what? At the end of all this, honestly, I think she's the most vulnerable. And so she wins. And so she goes off to the heavyside lair. And the cats are still cats at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And they tell us how to address them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they're not dogs. I don't know if you know this. It gets said a lot, but they are not dogs. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you've heard. Cats, scientifically, not dogs. I do know that I'm not blind when I'm born and I can't see in the dark. I certainly can't see in the dark. And I would never dare to look at a king nor sit on his throne. Okay, now that I've gotten through without... Vomiting, yeah. Yeah. I and, and and that that's a generous plot that I've given. Yeah. That's very generous. I, okay, here's There my... is one bump in the road. Uh oh. Um how, how would I describe him? Fuckboy McCavity likes to pop up sometimes and Oh, piss you all think McCavity is fuckboy? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We for so this is like I didn't want to get into the details, but there are two things that come to mind here that immediately stop me in my tracks. Number one, when I was watching the the filmed version that I what was came out in ninety eight yeah ninety eight okay. something like that two things came to mind upon re- understanding the the basic premise here which is that one cat is lucky enough to be decided to be reincarnated or move on to the next life that implies that there are multiple cats who have reached that stage who are old enough to be to be dead mm-hmm. um. I take severe issue with the understanding, with like the lack of understanding. Does this mean that, and I don't think it does, that all of the cats that evening are about to be on death's door and so that they're all vying for it? Or is it just the select few like, like Jenny Annie Dots, Gus, and uh, Grizabella? Like it seems like there's a much clearer age discrepancy between some of the older cats and the younger cats but they approach this as they're all part of this jellical ball and in my head the review and our introduction to all of the cats should be an introduction to each cat who is a theoretical contestant for reincarnation but it does not fit that bill so all those questions you just asked are partly why the movie sucks so hard because the movie tried to literally answer everything you just asked. Yes, I understand and, this. And and part of the I don't I'm not gonna say the magic, but like part of the appeal of cats to those who find it appealing is that it does not ever give you those answers. Yeah, and I can understand that. I don't like it. Sure. It's nothing is very clear cut about it. Excuse me. Ye ye old slut cat Grizabella. The whole clan does not like, and we never know why. Yeah, I know. It's annoying. In the movie, they make it that she went off with McCavity and became a hooker. And when oh. I asked 
Josh about it because like Trevor Nunn has like backstories for everyone. Oh, I know. The and show. there's like the whole lore of like the kittens and all that jazz. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. And then uh, not Bumblerina, but uh, one of them. I forget who. Uh, Jim, Jimima? Jemima? Demeter. Demeter. Demeter has like a sexual history with McCavity. Oh, God. Yeah. It's which like you would never know. And unnecessary. Every, so unnecessary. And everyone who's done cats knows all of these histories. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because um, something that something that I love about Trevor Nunn as a director at this time, I don't know if he still does it. And when I say I love this about him, I mean, like, I, I guess it works because he his his original companies like tend to give the performances that are iconic. Mm-hmm. But I also don't know if they really make all that big a difference. Like with the productions of cats, like first day of rehearsal, he goes on like a giant speech talking about like the history of English poetry, the winter's tale and like just all this shit and then like, you're like hi i'm playing a cat mm-hmm. like les mis the first week of rehearsals they didn't touch the script they were just like doing improv exercises and they had to like come in like what superhero is your character and oh, everyone's God. like am i gonna get fired like what is that is That's, this a it's, joke it's like the exercise they make you do when you do like educational theater if, mm-hmm. if listener if you've been in a bfa program which you probably have if you are listening to this podcast um, you know that exercise. You get cast on the show and the guest director is like, hi, everybody. We're going to spend one rehearsal where I want you to each go away to a little corner and write your backstory as like farmer number three in Oklahoma. I really want to know your trials and tribulation. Maybe you have a history with this w- w- other woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm, what yeah. I like about it in theory and some directors have done it well yeah um when i had natasha diaz on she talked about it with carousel like nick heiner like the very first day of rehearsal they did that but it wasn't like go into your corner think of stuff it was like correct everyone, everyone sat in a circle and oh he, and he basically like passed a ball around he's like when the ball comes to you like tell me the first thing that comes to mind about your character and then like bring it back and someone else is gonna take it and like when it gets back to you like think of a second thing absolutely um, and it felt very communal and whatnot building community and i was gonna say caveat here is if it's done well and it's like approached in the right setting sure that's gonna work really well so perhaps that's like sometimes there's a method to the badness yeah for something like les mis with that original company when they talk about like all the random ass improv exercises that trevor nunn made them do it weirdly makes sense because they all have to play a bunch of characters throughout the show Mm -hmm. the show takes place over 30 years and they need to be able to uh, create a new character every time and then be able to engage in the scenario in order to have them be fully committed during the rehearsal process where they're creating this shit. They need to open up their mind to every single possibility and every choice. Right. So if they're going as wacky as like, okay, what, what cartoon character is Marius? Once you're actually doing the scene scene, thinking of like, oh, how Marius would react like in this way doesn't seem so far-fetched. Correct. So again, method to the madness, but also 98% of directors don't do it well and waste your time. Yeah. Um, where was I getting to this? Oh, Cats. So. Oh, yeah. The show we're talking about that today. That fucking Cats? Sh- that show. Uh, so I recently have been getting into the uh, Studio Ghibli films, the films of Miyazaki. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of uh, magical stuff in his worlds, right? And a lot of the, I don't want to say the trumpet, I guess a lot of the appeal of it is that he doesn't explain a lot to you. He gives you enough that you have a general sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. But like with My Neighbor Totoro, you don't ever know what Totoro is. And I was reading an interview where people were like, well, what is he? He's like, you know, he's like a, he's a creature of the forest. He's like, yeah, you know. he's the spirit of the forest, yeah, he's like whatever. The de- he's like the den father of the forest, whatever. Yeah, and like, deity. Yeah, and they're like, oh, you thought about this? He's like, of course I did. I didn't explain it because it wasn't necessary. Yeah, um, right. And there's and cats is kind of similar where it's like don't think too hard yep. about 
what's going on. Like, we're giving you just enough information that you know, like, what's going to happen at the end of the evening. We're just going to do our thing for the next two hours. And for sure. And there's something to respect about this show in the sense that it is so weird, but it's so in charge of its weirdness. Like, it knows exactly what it is. It's not telling you that it's Oklahoma. They're not like, oh, what we're doing is actually really highbrow. They're like, no. We're cats. One of us is going to die tonight. Um, it might be you. It might be you. In the matinee. Mm-hmm. And, th- like, it, the world makes sense to them. Yeah. So, it does. even if it doesn't totally make sense to us, like, we still get that, like, this has been thought through. I think that's probably why New York audiences, to go back to your earlier point mm-hmm. of, like, New York, maybe native New Yorkers when cats came over, maybe took a little bit more of a, a shame uh, mm-hmm. to partaking in this is because I think New Yorkers who have access to Broadway, right, and have always had access to Broadway are expecting something that they might need to use a little bit more brain power for. And so probably the fact that it is kind of a show that you can surrender to was not the ex- not the show that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of New Yorkers want to be able to say, like, I understood the plot. I I understood the, the thematic or the context or the 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 major takeaway here and cats is a show that's just n- simply not going to entertain giving you a purpose yeah and much as i love being a new yorker it is kind of a flaw of american audiences that we need yeah. everything explained yeah it's why i take issue with a lot of people when they talk about the quote-unquote problematic elements of certain golden age musicals and some of them are problematic i would argue with the comedies more than the dramas that's for sure com- but that's because comedies age poorly but some shows where they're like well this problematic plot point i'm like it's meant to be like like not cute like this is not supposed to be funny this is a very real situation uh especially because most stories most successful stories is about someone you know doing the wrong thing 90 percent of the time and then right. making the right decision at the end cats is the anomaly because yeah. well actually no i take that back cats isn't an anomaly because 90% of the show is the clan rejecting Grizabella and then accepting her at the very end. Yeah, but is it 90%? Because I'd argue it's... 95. Fif- yeah, no, no, no. I would say it's 15%. I, I know what you're going for, but in terms of the active ability to witness that happening on stage, it, sure. it occurs perhaps over less than 10 minutes of a two-hour musical. Yes, but the fact that she's not on stage so much is because they do right. not accept Right, I understand. Um, in fact, there was a video I sent you. I probably uh, watched it. You'll watch it after this. It's a good no, video. No, I probably watched it. Oh, you probably watched it. Oh, oh, I thought you said I haven't watched no. it. No. It was the sideways video, which is uh, why the music in Cats is so bad. Oh, the one you sent me today. Yeah. No, I did not okay. listen. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's mostly about the movie version. Uh, yeah. Because c- this is a guy, he's done a lot of musical theater stuff. He really likes to do Disney stuff. Mm-hmm. And he and I have very similar takes on why like the live action Disney remakes are so terrible. Yeah. I am aware of this yeah. person. So I... I, at this point, I don't remember what I've said or what I haven't said, and I'm also recording this all out of order. So if someone wants to come for me for repeating myself, you could go to the. I'm Jellicle. really sorry. I'm not helping Matt here at no. all. Go to the Jellica Ball and die in the heavy side layer for all I care. <laughs> but as I recently re, uh, as I recently watched a lot of the Disney live action remakes that I had not seen, and then rewatched Beauty and the Beast, which still is a piss shit garbage fire. Mm. Uh, you can like it, but you cannot tell me it's good. You're allowed to like. I have it, no. Know. I have nothing to offer you. I have seen it, but I'm not going to engage. I'm just telling people who like it. I'm like, you're allowed to like it. We all like. I like things that I don't necessarily think are good. I'll, but I won't argue with you that it is. Anywho, 
these what makes these remakes also so terrible is Disney movies when they are good, mm-hmm. Golden Age, Renaissance. They're not necessarily about anything political or current. They're sort of about the nuances of humanity. Hubris. Yes. These epic uh, adventures that are really just essentially very simple stories. You know, I I said Beauty and the Beast, it's about um, what's underneath and not letting your uh, how society perceives you define you. Little Mermaid's about a parent understanding their child's road to happiness isn't their own. Um, And then the earlier ones are obviously a little more, even more simple. Cinderella and Snow White, goodness will prevail, like remain, uh, uh, retain your optimism and you will persevere. And what makes what makes those movies work are the nuances that they include. And they don't put too much detail into explaining the magic because they're like, it's just there. That's all you need to know. Yeah, the magic is there. The magic is there. That's all you need to know. And so when people ask like, well, where's the mom and how did this work? The remakes are like, well, let's address all of that. And then it's all yeah. gone. All the magic, all the all the charm is gone. Right, because you're taking away the opportunity to have any sort of imagination about those things. Yes. Because that kind of is the glue that keeps a lot of that kind of stuff together. Because you get to decide for yourself, right? It, 100%, which is why the Miyazaki films work so well. And going back to Cats with the video I was telling you about with Sideways, he also says like, they... Like, what makes Cats on Stage work if it works for you? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why it works for people. That's a always disclaimer. We don't need to keep readdressing this. This is a a take what resonates for you kind of show. 100%. It is the the most inkblot musical of all time. Yeah. Rorschach, if you will. Do you think, a, a, a quick on this, do you think it is perhaps the most polarizing musical? Um. In terms of, in terms of, uh, reception. Like, I feel like Cats is the show that either you really love it or you really don't vibe with it. I think there's definitely an argument to be made. I think a lot of people who love it are pretty quiet about it. Okay. Um, because it, the narrative these days have has been like, well, everyone knows that Cats is shit, right? And, it's like, and everyone's like, ha ha, yeah. yeah. But you also have to... Remember, like it did last a very long time, pretty much yeah. everywhere, and there's got to be a reason. There's a reason, for that. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it's definitely up there. It's I would probably put it in the top five. I don't know what would number what number one would be. Um, but so with the sideways video, he talks about cats. He's like, listen, it's a very simple plot. That's part of the charm of it. He goes, cats is sort of the hero story told from the perspective of the antagonist mm. uh, because, and you don't realize that until act two that like all the cats in the Jellicle Ball are the obstacle for Grizabella yeah. going to the heavyside lair. And yeah, like, they, like they're the poor provincial town in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bonjour, bonjour. Fuck off. <laughs> bonjour, bonjour. Fuck off. Yeah, that's that number. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone asks me, what's that song in Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> Bell. Oh, yeah. Bonjour, bonjour. Fuck, fuck off. off. <laughs> So we're talking about cats. Yes, we are. Hal, it's about cats. Is there a song in this show that you did like listening to? Yeah. 
Which was? There's two. And I, I will put this along with, because I feel like the songs are so much a re- actual representation of the character more mm-hmm. than like, like it, it really coincides with the actor's portrayals of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm doing an amalgamation of like, these are the characters I like most and the songs that I like most. Um, I generally prefer in life, I guess, like more upbeat, funny, comedic numbers. So Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser is hands down. I love that number. Um, and I want to talk to you about how they kind of in my limited research that I've done, I had read how they kind of altered it a few times mm-hmm. across productions. And I have thoughts and opinions on that. Um, but Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser and then uh, Skimble Shanks, is that is there a K in there? Yeah. Skimble Shanks? The Skimble, real- Skimble Shanks, yes. Skimble mm-hmm. Shanks. Skimble Shanks, the railway cat. cat. I'm sorry. There is something to be said for that lyric, which is just Skimble Shanks, the railway <laughs> railway cat. He is the cat of the railway. Yeah. That's the lyric. And I was like, I'm obsessed. Skimble Shanks does rails all the way. <laughs> does. He he rails. Um, <laughs> No, that's Rum Tum Tugger. I wrote, I, t- I was, st- I, when I... I was very valiant mm. in my efforts of watching through the film. I was like, I'm going to take notes. I'm going to be prepared. And then I had to surrender. And I was just like, the, literally all my notes were like, what? That is Why? the key word to cast. Just surrender. surrender. Just surrender. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But Rum Tum Tugger, the, the whole number could have been replaced. The lyrics could have just been this cat fucks. Mm-hmm. That, that's literally the number. Um, all the women think that he wants to fuck them. Yeah. He and don't. He, and he don't. He, he wants, wants it. Mr. Mistopheles, mm-hmm. which I I saw that theory and I was like, I like that. Well, That's more interesting because he gets the women riled up, but he never actually. Yeah, no, no, no. He doesn't interest in any of them. No, he just puts his ass in their face, and they're all like, I have a hot take. I think that Rum Tum Tugger is a secret bottom. <laughs> he projects top energy, top Mick Jagger energy when he sings, but I think when he and Mistopheles get in, you know, the back room. He's bent over a barrel. I I don't have any authority in this. Uh, in yeah, I don't. Sure, you're right. Go ahead, you. Matt. That's all I want. Wow, wanted to that's hear. great. Wow, hot, wonderful take, Matt. He, I'll say, the I think Rum Tum Tugger is a power bottom. There you go. Now there you she can is. pull quote. The the only power bottom in the show. Everyone else is pretty verse. <laughs> Including the women. Listen, I made a joke with uh, John Krause where, so they add a whole like through line. They had a second through line with McCavity where like, whereas in the show, he kind of pops up twice to be like, yes, Bleh. yeah, no, literally, that's my opinion. He's just literally, it's like, jeté, yep. and then leaves. And like, he's, he's sort of an annoyance. Like the one time he kind of does anything, he kidnaps Deuteronomy only from- Steals to- his liver. I'm convinced- Oh, yeah. He Put, fully steals Deuteronomy's on, liver. Puts him on the black market. Kidney, excuse me. His kidneys. Put them on the black liver. Uh, the black liver. Put them <laughs> on the black market. It's a black market with black liver. But they get him back within four minutes. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. So the movie tried to add a whole thing, especially because in Cats, it is truly an ensemble show. Only yeah. Grizabella ever really gets to go off stage. Correct. Um, everyone else, like, you're on stage the entire time. They're like, well, we can't have Rebel Wilson and James Corden um be here like all for two the time. minutes yeah, exactly we, we need to add another plot to make an excuse for like why they're not in the jellicle ball yeah why they're not singing back up for everyone else and so they make it that mccavity is stealing all the jellicle choices so like whereas you were asking like 
is everyone a Jellicle option or is it just the cats who have songs? And the movie's like, yeah, it's really just the cats who have songs. And McCavity is kidnapping all the ones with songs so he can be the only Jellicle choice. I'm already bored. Right? Um, but then again, like, they keep over-explaining it. Yeah. They're like, did you get it? But, like, but <laughs> it happens pretty early on. It happens right after Rebel Wilson's song and the James Corden song. And, like, no one notices that McCavity is doing this until... Wait, wait, wait. But Gumby Cat is, like, the second number in the show. Mm-hmm. She, oh, sorry. She gets um, kidnapped right after Rum Tum Tugger. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so, the, yeah, it's her song, then Rum Tum Tugger, then she gets kidnapped. James Corden does his song, he gets kidnapped. Uh, no one notices that anyone's getting kidnapped until Skimbleshanks. Wow. Wow, that's a long time. Long time. And I said to John, I was like... That would not work in the play. Yeah, I was like, this is supposed to be like a tight-knit group of people. It's like, no cat turns around and goes like, has anyone seen Rebel Wilson? She usually pegs me by now. I was gonna, I was about to be like, well, in the Jellica Ball, where they're all basically having a cat orgy, they they're, wouldn't notice that their usual orgy buddy is not there? Yeah. I'm sorry. I usually come on James Corden's face at this point. Like, where is he? I have to now go on to Demeter. Uh, Demeter has such a smaller face. I need a wider range. I don't like okay. to aim so much. I no, was... I can't be crude because this is cats and nothing is too crude for cats. You do not get to crude shave me. Okay. <laughs> How dare you? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm closing uh, it up right now. <laughs> I'm in and, and thank I'm you for listening to our episode. <laughs> Just beeps out the rest of the... <laughs> Beep. Beep. Five, 25 minutes later. And now let's talk about the Tony Awards. Oh, my God. It's but th- that's sort of the thing about cats that has always been there, which no one likes to talk about. Is like these cats have always been horny. Yeah, no, they're super horny. It's part of the reason why T.S. Eliot's widow allowed Andrew Lloyd Webber to do the show. Yeah, she was like, yeah, she was like, ooh, sexy cats. Yeah, she was like, I don't want them to be cutesy. Unitard, I want to see their whole dump truck ass. <laughs> I want to see their whole dumper. Um, but to answer your question about which numbers really stand out no. to me, I mean, and this is like without saying like, I love memory. It's a great song. Yeah. Great performance. Um, but that's, that, it not also gonna... depends who sings it. Like that is not that's a song. Correct. While it's a great song, it does not hold up to a mediocre singer. Yeah, for sure. Right. It has to, the performer has to meet the demands of the song in order for it to be as impactful as it can mm-hmm. be. I I didn't. I do not want to see Judy Dench's version of Memory. No, I agree with you. I I, I could sit that one out. Yeah. Midnight. Not sound oh, from the no, pavement. No, no. no, I don't want to. Has the moon lost her memory? That would be heinous. Just a you get like I mean that's the reward for the show, right? I've that's never you... seen Haynes' ass. Oh, shut up. Um, the the reward for surrendering is memory. Yeah. In my opinion, but so could you imagine you get to it, and it's fucking spoken mm-hmm. i'd be like no i no this is where i draw the line to put it into perspective it's doing quick head and defying gravity is done as a deaf poetry session <laughs> so if you care to find me look to the western sky it's not even wicked on a no-fly day it's wicked on a no-fly day while alphabet's on vocal rest oh no that's what we're dealing with here. A complete quick non sequitur here was that when I saw the first time I saw it on Broadway, which uh, also this is taking away my theater, my theater card. I did not see a production of Wicked Live until I was in college. And then I did not see it on Broadway until 2016, maybe. So I'm so sorry for everyone. Um, I've, I've fooled you all. Um can I tell you a secret? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that I get all the way, you know, 
we're like, yay, the show's happening. Defying Gravity is happening. Not but a verse, it, the first verse into the, of Defying Gravity, a woman right in front of me gets up to go to the restroom and my friend and I were like, no, like, no, this is it. This is like what you bought the ticket for. Like, ma'am, you're going to be released to the restroom in less than five minutes. Like she goes up, she screams and then she comes down and then it's and then you get to pee. We're like, you missed it. You miss it. Your $145 have gone down the drain. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just love that. It's like in your point of like we you surrender for this moment. This is yeah. the number you've been waiting for. And she was like, you know what? I just can't hold it. I got to go Now's right now. Well, to be fair, if that was a good performance of Defying Gravity, she probably would have pissed herself during it. Don't feel too bad because here's a secret for you, Amanda. Yeah. I've actually never seen a Broadway show once in my life. I've been lying this entire time. That is just absolutely false. I'm actually really into sports. I actually know that this is false because I sat next to you at Beetlejuice. Where <laughs> I've told the story, but you tell the story too. Why... Why? Okay, my brain is giving me Carrie Ellis, and that's not Carrie correct. Butler. Thank you. Wow, and she's not, but halfway through her glass of red wine. You had Wicked on the brain. That's why. Yeah, uh, Carrie Butler, original company of Beetlejuice. I'm sitting next to Matthew Coplick with our future guest Sophia Christensen. That's correct. And I couldn't even. What's the what the fuck song? It's was called it? Barbara 2.0. Yes, Barbara 2.0 ends with Carrie Butler. Screlting higher than anyone should be allowed to at her age. And this was not only confirmed, but enthusiastically supported in the theater by, through the thunderous applause, Matthew Coplick standing and shouting, She's 90! And I and and in the in the truest sense of love and support, not in there was no shade to be, but just screaming it through the applause, and it was truly a sight to behold. <laughs> so so, I also do not didn't give, even I didn't even think about it. It just came out. Yeah, no, no. There was like no. This was like you didn't. This was not premeditated. It just had to come out of your soul. You were like, I need everyone to know. She still got it. She's ninety. <laughs> a drop of scotch while I was keeping on the watch, only stopping here and there to catch a fee. So, Skimble Shanks, Mongo Jerry Rumble Teaser. Yeah. Your two favorite songs. Put yes. a pin in Mongo Jerry Rumble Teaser. Yes. Because it has history. Uh, Skimble Shanks, she's such a bop. Um, weirdly, <laughs> I actually really like the opening number a lot. Lyrics aside, I think musically speaking, it's really cool. Also, just production-wise, uh, uh, th- I, I could imagine... And we'll, I will say this again when we get to kind of closing statements, closing mm-hmm. arguments. Sure. I have a lot of respect for the show being what it is. And I can only imagine kind of the magic that we've been talking about of seeing it live, right? And yeah. See, that opening number, to see that live in the, in the way that they so, uh, that, you know, the way that it looks just through a camera, which we already know is really hard to kind of sell, um, live theater through a camera's mm-hmm. lenses 
I could only imagine that number being so exciting to me in in an actual live space. Yeah. So the the opening number very exciting when done well. I will also say that film production. Um, actually, I think it's filmed very well. They do a really good job of capturing certain moments and getting mm-hmm. the energy what it doesn't capture is truly the spectacle of that show correct which i didn't which i found out when i went to go see it so that's a good time as any i was obsessed with that vhs i liked it so oh, much yes. i had all the things and i finally got to go see it it was like because it was closing that september i think i saw it like in june so and this has to be 2000 yeah june of 2000 i was a slender 10 years old and <laughs> fran goes and now me. you're 13 yeah, thank you so much uh, I go to see it with Fran, and I thought I knew the show and like what it looked like. You enter the Winter Garden Theater, and when I tell you that it was truly environmental, I mean like Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812 has nothing on the hmm. original production of Cats. Like the moment you enter, it does not look like a theater. It looks truly like what about Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson? Honey Boo Boo Child. I'm kidding. That I'm is kidding. kindergarten. This is grad school. It is um like you like not a trace of a theater to be had, which I know a lot of actors who were in the show hated because apparently they were really bad at keeping you know up to code and stuff. Like they had mm. a roach problem, all that stuff. But when you enter the theater, you know you have tarps everywhere, you have cans everywhere. Also, the set is done from the perspective of a cat's eye, so everything's enlarged and like yeah. you feel like you were in the junkyard with the cats from their perspective, and. The ceiling is covered like it's a it's a it's a painted moonlit sky um, above you. Like, again, you don't see anything resembling a theater. And already I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And this and the uh, stage kind of jutted out a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the cats are really all around you and happening like right in front of you was not expecting it at all. Growl Tiger's Last Stand, which is Gus's performance number, is not in the filmed version. Correct. They cut it. And yes, it is kind of, in my opinion, a waste of a number. It pads a show too long but the jaw-dropping element of the set for growl tiger for sure was enough because all you had seen was basically like this unit set for lack of a better term and it was really impressive but that's all you saw um also they don't show it in the film version but when rum uh, tugger makes his entrance he actually did it at the back of the stage like he scratched through the sky that was like paper oh, cool. and yeah that's how he came through and then after act one um old deuteronomy sat at the tire and had to stay there. And audiences members were allowed to go on stage and like walk around and see the set. Because there were also there was also on stage seating, I remember. Like sort of it really? wasn't Yeah, it wasn't like a great view. It was like almost from the wings, but you could sit on stage and you were weird. kind of hidden. It was it was a weird se- seating situation. But he sat on the stage, you could walk around him, they put the set back up. Growl Tiger, at, when Gus is like, I can do Growl Tiger again, the back wall came down to reveal like in a pop-up book but like from the other like the full bow of a ship yep it was mind-blowing and then if that weren't enough and the filmed version when grizabella gets to go to the heavy side layer she goes onto the tire and the tire raises up in the filmed version it goes up maybe like no you had sent me so matt you had sent me two different videos you had sent me well obviously i watched the filmed version yes which is definitely a much more subdued spectacle to the version that I ended up seeing in the clip you sent me from when they were uh, approaching their longest running show on Broadway uh, performance with the tire. Yep. And there's, and the the reason I sent that to you is because when I saw the filmed version, 
you know, the tire raises like eight or ten feet, and yep. I always heard like it was this big thing. I'm like, it doesn't go that high, and a claw comes from back from backstage and takes Grizabella up, and like it's cute and whatnot. When I saw the show, and I and I'm in the orchestra with Fran, mm-hmm. like fifth row, let's say, the tire went up an extra like maybe five or six feet in terms of height, and then it started to go forward, which I was not, not expecting. expecting, and I already was like guffawing. And then if that weren't enough, rather from the side of the stage, the claw that uh, welcomes Grizabella to the heavy side there came from the fucking ceiling above my head. Yeah. The ceiling opened up and a claw came out and Grizabella walked above my head and I fell out of my chair, which yeah. is why I sent you that video. Well, that walked so that Mary Poppins could run, mm-hmm. if we're being honest. Sure. But that was, so that was actually like my first foray into like, spectacle i would say probably in a musical like, of like coming over your head yeah yeah stuff, of yeah. like really like playing with space and so, like i mean there's something sure. to be said not to make this about mary poppins but Go her her fly out at the end of the show but also bert tap dancing on the proscenium like mm-hmm. things that are just like absolutely mind-bending so i can only imagine if that's something we got in the like mid-2000s having this tire fly out and then also in the clip that you showed me the fucking lighting mm-hmm. from from underneath the tire too mm-hmm. i mean from the clip you sent me it's like the angle that it is is kind of kind of like off in the wing almost yeah like from the corner of the proscenium it's from it's from um one of the boxes i think yeah yeah it is that was magical and that was from a million trillion years ago in the Yeah, from like ninety seven I wanna say. Yeah, with yeah. the light and the and the fog is like coming out from underneath it and like you know, it's mm-hmm. oh, honestly it's a little bit of a defying gravity moment. Yeah. When she, everyone leans down and she's getting mm-hmm. higher. Well so like with the tire and cats, Mary Poppins, that stuff, what it really is is like it's why it's really difficult for musicals on stage to transfer to film when you make a movie of it. Right. And why um, you have to kind of not make it so realistic on film. You Mm -hmm. need the audience to buy into the fact this is a world where people sing. You go into a theater knowing it's not real. Mm -hmm. And subconsciously everyone's like, we signed an agreement that the limits of your world go to the edge of the stage Mm -hmm. and we are safe in our seats and we will observe you from afar. And then when things like Mary Poppins happens where she like flies over the audience, where Grizabella goes over the audience, things mm-hmm. like that, it blows our minds because we're like, I did not know that this was part of the deal. And like, it's a happy surprise. Yeah. Um. Sometimes, you know, when people come out and interact with you, that's not a happy surprise. The no. famous story with, with Elaine Stritch. Mm-hmm. She's in the audience with cats opening and in the original Broadway production. Um, they Lion Kinged it. They Lion Kinged it. I think they did it in the revival too. I can't remember. I saw the revival. I forgot the revival happened. <sighs> Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but they, they, they when, during the overture, the cats come out to the audience, like, look at you. And Elaine Stritch saw one. And she was like, don't fucking touch me. It's amazing. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting that either, because in the filmed version, the overture is just, you know, cat eyes, cat eyes, cat eyes. So right. I was like, oh, sure. Like, this whole thing happens in the dark. Uh, they had this sort of weird lighting grid thing that was like, a, it looked like a UFO mm-hmm. that was on the stage when the show began. And when the overture began, it rose up. And so the lights kind of spread out from there and then uh, cat eyes were flashing all over the sets and then the cats came out into the audience and immediately you're, you're like, okay, I'm in another world. Yeah. And little 10-year-old me who was like, I've memorized this VHS. I was like, oh, I don't know what to expect now. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I think it is why so many movie musicals don't work, especially mm-hmm. like capturing live action performance, like, you know, mm-hmm. literally taking the stage production and then putting them 
on mm-hmm. film doesn't doesn't read because that was the my main takeaway was like you know I'm so distracted by the fact that I have all these questions that are going unanswered it's very difficult for me to surrender to the magic of seeing cats from a spec a fully spectator I'm in my apartment watching this on a screen yeah. as opposed to I can easily imagine if I was of the right age or even a young adult at that time when Cats was still running and I got to witness like I I am the first person I can go with anybody like I'm happy to surrender to any my suspension of disbelief is usually pretty pretty forgiving mm-hmm. um I would have probably eaten that shit up unfortunately this is from the early 90s uh, or the mid 90s yeah. and uh and I was I'm recovering from a pandemic that we've all been through and I'm a jaded ass New Yorker and you're also in your apartment you're not like in the throes of it all right. you're, you're watching on a computer screen for sure um I will take this opportunity since we've been talking about Mary Poppins to say and about the magic of theater and these moments do you know that this is I, I'm actually putting Matt on the spot here Um, As a native New Yorker, there was for a really long time during the run that Mary Poppins was on Broadway, there was an advertisement specific to Taxi TV. Do you remember this ad at all? That's really kind of you to think that I just had the budget to be in taxis all the time. Oh, well, I certainly didn't. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Okay, I remember... and I'm, I'm talking about being in one taxi cab over, I mean, how long did that show run? Yeah, like seven years. Correct. Like that, yeah. Okay, so you had seven years to ride one taxi. Because it, <laughs> it, it... it... <laughs> Who am I, Carrie Bradshaw taking cabs everywhere? <laughs> because without a shadow of a doubt, it always played when you were in the cab. And what it did was it was an ad for Mary Poppins and they did like brief testimonials with like people who had seen the show to describe the magic of seeing Mary Poppins on Broadway. And my favorite pull quote from it is this woman who is, she goes, even I, a native New Yorker went, how'd they do that? And that is my favorite pull quote because she's speaking to like the magic, her flying and stuff. So we need to embrace that a little bit more with uh, cats. Yeah. Well, even I, a jaded New Yorker. Oh, that's what it is. It's not native New Yorker. She goes, even I, a jaded New Yorker went, how'd they do that? That actually rings a bell. You ob- you must know the absolutely famous uh, man on the street commercial for Grand Hotel. So, you know, that is so that Mary Poppins commercial you're referring to. Yes. It's a man on the street commercial where they like interview people coming out of the theater being like, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? In theory, yes. This one, I'm, I'm just going to split hairs here. This was in a studio. They okay. Pulled, they well, pulled sure. people into a studio. Fantastic. But they used to do it where it was like right in front of the yeah, theater. Yeah, for sure. Like, right. They're like you, a humble patron who just walked out of the theater. Tell us your yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Very much so. They did that in the 80s a lot in the early 90s. And they did it for Grand Hotel when Sid Charisse was in the show. Oh, God. And there is a commercial they did that is in its musical theater Broadway legend, this woman. Tight curls, gray hair, giant glasses, smoky, smoky, husky, husky, New York Jewish Staten Island voice. I loved it. <laughs> Such a is amazing. It's phenomenal. Best thing I've ever seen on Broadway. Like her eyes are wide. And... It's so clear that the people behind the camera like were not expecting this, and the guy's like, 
oh, I guess you didn't like it very much. And she goes, I loved, loved it. it. And she goes, I intend to see it two more times at least. <laughs> very specific. Yeah, she, she thinks about it too. She's like, I, intend, I plan to see it two, two more, more times. <laughs> and they go, when are you going to go? She goes, as soon as I can get tickets, my husband works in the area. <laughs> You're in the ensemble of cats. You have so much material to yep. learn. You're on stage the entire time. You're entire dancing time. all the time. Um, like yeah, dancing yeah. your ass off. Like mm-hmm. obviously, if you are aware of cats in any capacity, you know it's a very dance heavy show. But it's a dance, a really, really, really dance heavy show. Like yeah. I could not imagine. In one of the clips you had sent me about the making of the show, I mean, they talked about it, it kind of was like the original Spider-Man and that people were getting injured left and right because mm-hmm. they just kind of were not prepared to to be moving like that and to have that like much demand of a physical show. Yeah. And the choreography actually came under scrutiny a lot for Broadway because, again, in London, they were like, finally, we have our own dance show. Like, yeah, Americans keep coming over here with a chorus line and West Side Story. Like, we got cats. And when the Schuberts were taking it on, Bernie Jacobs who was very close with Michael Bennett at the time, told Cameron McIntosh, she was like, you need to get Michael Bennett on this. Like, your choreography's not good. And Cameron McIntosh was like, well, I'm surprised. Like, the choreography's like a big reason why the show is successful. And like, if yeah. you read some of the reviews from New York, a lot of them do kind of shit on the choreography. Like, in what capacity? Just that they don't think it's very good. They're like, it's not structured. It's like, it's kind of whatever. It, it kind of uh, isn't that inventive. It's mostly just acrobatics. And I get what they mean. Yeah, but I would disagree well, so, with them. Michael Bennett came to see the show in London. Yeah. Mostly to appease Bernie Jacobs and meets with Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And they're like, well, you know, Bernie really wants you to re-choreograph it. And Michael Bennett's like, I know what Bernie said. I'm not going to do it. And they're like, well, why? Like, is this, are we beneath you? He's like, no, no, no. It's like, what you have is a great show. I won't, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. And they're like, well, then why does Bernie want you to redo the choreography? He goes, he says, Bernie knows that I can make better steps. But I can't make this a better show. Correct. And that's what he doesn't get. So, like, Michael Bennett would have done more structured dances, like a turkey lurkey time, where it builds and it builds and it builds. But, like, the choreography that Jillian Lynn created... Yeah, it's is iconic. ...and part of that world. world. Yeah, right. The The choreography is... That's one thing I'll give to Cats in this regard, is, like, the choreography supports the show and the telling that it, it needs to have. There 110%. Is, there is never a moment in Cats where you go wait a second, like, that's different from what's been happening. Like, it is consistent in its world building. They never falter for a second. Correct. It's either you're on board or you're not. That's the that's the thing. Yeah. And I can understand why people might not like it, but I, I mean, like... I mean, I, you don't like it. And I don't like it. <laughs> right. I don't like it, but I would also come for anybody who was like, you know, that choreography, I'd be like, oh, fuck you. Mm. No. I mean, I will say... While I do love the opening number, there are moments in the choreography where, again, like, I'm like, sure, Michael Bennett could come up with something maybe a little cleaner, a little yeah. more interesting. But it is, again, it's all just part of the world. And having seen the most recent revival mm-hmm. where the choreography was yeah, spruced was, up by yeah, Andy Blankenbuehler. Yeah, some... And then he also did the choreography for the film. Oh, it right. never felt like cats cat dancing. Yeah. It felt like dancers dancing correct and what Jillian Lynn's choreography was so good at was evoking the 
um, idea of a cat. Yeah. So no one was like literally, you know, lifting their leg and peeing. No one's like, you know, licking themselves. They're doing like, you know, little of the, the combing of the hair and stuff like that. But it's more that middle ground of like dance and cat. Yeah. Finding that middle ground. Yeah. Which it does very well. And then I think after that, when people try to adapt it, they go one way go too far. Yeah. One, one way, way too or the far. Other, yeah. The other. yeah. Yeah. Either too dancey. Yep. Or too catty. Yep. <laughs> too too catty. Too no one, catty. No one's ever said that about me. Not one bit. N- never. Never. Uh, so I want to just say a quick thing about the opening number, Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats, and then we'll talk about yes. Mungo Jerry and have a <gasps> teaser. So when you listen to the overture and you listen to the opening number, especially on the Broadway cast recording, I said this in the Evita episode, but I just finished editing it, and I unfortunately had to cut this bit out. I hope to keep it here. There's a lot you can say about Andrew Lloyd Webber as a composer, disparagingly or encouragingly. The one thing that I truly think you cannot fault him for is that he is a brilliant orchestrator. Uh-huh. Uh, and he tends to orchestrate his own stuff most of the time. Starting with Cats onwards, he pretty much orchestrates all of his own scores with a man named David Cullen. I think David Cullen did Woman in White on his own, but like, especially after Evita, because Evita, Andrew Lloyd Webber was not allowed to orchestrate it himself. They brought on um, Hershey K to co-orchestrate it and who did a phenomenal job. But Andrew Lloyd Webber is such a micromanager and he likes to control and he wants to sort of be on top of it all, especially with the stuff that he's bringing to the table he's like it's my music I have you have- seen him in 2020 talk about anything related to his show yeah oh boy uh not to introduce that demon but let's but go but you, you see hints of yeah you can cats. see glints of of the level of control that yeah. he wants to have he, in his material he's co-producing cats with really useful group as his like new production company because he wants to have say there and he's orchestrating it and it's same thing with like literally all the shows from then on but the orchestrations in cats uh, work really well in the sense that, like, the moment that overture begins, you're like, oh, this is not a traditional musical. It's it's very good at setting the tone, setting the atmosphere. It's the synthesizers and all that stuff. Like, you, it does not sound like regular music. It is transporting you, you into another world. Angelical Songs for Jellical Cats basically is two melodies um, repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it builds as brilliantly as it does is more a testament to Angelo Dober's skills as an orchestrator because it builds in that respect more than it builds um, in terms of song structure. Yeah, you're right. Like it starts very quiet and and adds a little bit more each time. And then when you have the little, um, I don't even know what it is exactly, but it's like, uh, it goes to the Jellicle, songs are Jellicle, cats, bump. Um, there's like yeah, the orchestra yeah. comes in on that. The little tap at the, the little, top. Yep. I, it just always gives me a little like bit of, childlike delight when that happens it's so cute and it's and it's mysterious but also playful like it goes back and forth and it's really clever and then every song is a different style and the orchestrations always um work with that while also still maintaining the world you have like gumby cat which is much more like andrew sisters 1920s and then rum tum tugger which is more mick jagger and then you know on and on and on yeah i'm sure it was uh really exciting to like just hear and play with all the musical styles mm-hmm. uh, especially at the time that it came out because there wasn't really i don't think up until that time a show that was really doing that playing playing with different musical genres within one show definitely not yeah so i'm sure it was like a delight that every number felt like a, a like a really new experience right mm-hmm. um i was going to say when you were describing the the overture mm-hmm 
and that opening orchestration and you are, are immediately of like, oh, I'm already in this world mm-hmm. and I'm okay. I'm just going to I'm going to go with you here. It's not like anything else I've heard with the synth and everything. The first show that I thought of because I was like, what other show really has done that for me um, is actually Rocky Horror. Mm. When you hear the beginning to uh, science fiction double feature, mm-hmm. I think that's the name of the opening. Oh. Yeah. Even from that beginning, like that is another experience where you're like, I have no idea what I'm about to get into. And you kind of just have to surrender because the world is so, uh, what's the word? Exceptional in the sense that it's yeah. unlike anything else. That that and the overture to Cats, it's a really weird pairing, but it's like, oh, it okay. Yeah, it yeah. Fits. It's very similar of like, okay, I'm just going to go on a ride and this is not what I'm expecting at all, but mm-hmm. I'm going to... I'm. I'm hearing something that's taking me somewhere else. I better just buckle up. Yeah. And I still don't like cats. I feel like learning the music to this show would be treacherous Mm. because and this could just be my ear and how I hear things and how I interpret it. There are some songs in in Cats that are like earworm, uh, earworms. Yeah. Yeah. And you can and like you understand the melody. Right. And the and the time. So many of the other numbers. I'm like, this is weird. Mm -hmm. This is so weird. And I could only imagine how difficult it would be to add all those elements together and to be like, no, you're singing like in a four part harmony here and you're kicking your face here. But also the rhythm is unlike anything. It's not it's changing like every three bars or, you know, Mm -hmm. I just was like, this is crazy. Imagine trying to memorize all the lines in um, the naming of cats, which is right no. after Jellicle songs. Yeah, correct. And it's all no. spoken. Correct. And there's and the music behind you is just the yeah, and they're it's like, like a horror movie. Right, right, right. Oh yeah, I literally I wrote I was like, what the fuck? That was the first time I had seen that clip mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, and I was just like, I would be terrified. Yeah, and then it goes right into the. Actually, no. Um, well, actually, no. That's later because have... that's Deuteronomy's theme. That is Deuteronomy. Well, um, it's basically more like the ball's beginning. So All right. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Like Deuteronomy has it as well. Well, because he kind of always appears when yeah. they talk about the, the ball. The only real true theme of Cats is the... Which is just going... Which is just going down... It's just going down the scale. All it is is just going down the scale. People are like, I eat that shit up. Well, it's like... You know what it is? It's almost like a bouncing ball going down the stairs. Yeah, for sure. bouncing up and up. Yeah, it's enticing. Yeah, and it's done in a weird key. So it has that like magical, ethereal element to it. Um, yeah, it's, as I said, like, there are moments, if, if Andrew Lloyd Webber were writing Cats today, or even, like, in the late 90s, he would probably not have the name yeah. of Cats, or be much more cuddly. The fact that it's so off is unsettling, and also, like, makes me respect the show a bit more. That's, like, you just did this big-ass opening number that's quite lovely. Yeah, and, and then you're literally, like, there's really no melody here. It's just everyone's making direct eye contact mm-hmm. and speak singing at you for about three minutes. Yeah, it's making eye contact while touching your nipple. It's, like, very... <laughs> like, I understand that the cats are enjoying this. I am not. I am not. No. No. 
but going into the, another song you love that we yes. talked about, Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. Yes. Song has quite the history. Yes. When it opened on the West End, it had a different West. melody than it did when it came really? to Broadway. Mm-hmm. It's so the the um, structure of it is the same when when you listen to it, but it's so the melody for Broadway, which is the melody that the People show know. continues now, yeah, is a Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. In London, it was like Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser, a couple of cats, da 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 da, and it doesn't have that excitement to it. It's much more um like. 40s jazzy uh comedic villains like it's almost like vaudevillian kind of like it's almost as like you can imagine them going up to the mic at a club and just shimming on each other while they sing this got it all right it's like yeah very that and they repurposed it for broadway i'm not entirely sure what the reasoning behind it was but then when they opened it on broadway they didn't even sing the song it was mr mistopheles who sang it no i thought it was not even mistopheles i thought it was i'm gonna butcher his name i'm muckraker whatever the fuck uh, monkey strap yep um honestly that would make more sense as he I is i think it is as he's the it's not him though, because it opens right, with Mistopheles. Right, because he's like the being, narrator. It opens with Mistopheles being like Mr. Mistopheles, thing of a Bobby, and he then sings it. Mm. I, I I can oh, say that. Oh, you're right, right, right. Because in the Broadway production, how it originated there was he like sang about Mungo Jerry and Rebel Teaser while treating them almost like marionettes. No, I when I was reading something, it said they they quite literally did like a pantomime play with mm-hmm. with like literal marionettes. Yeah. And I was like, I hate that because yeah. we've already established in this world that the cats are a thing that can be on the stage. So mm-hmm. why would you have puppets of the cats if you could just have the cats? Because. I because. know. And I, then they, But then they do change it. I and know And then they're they like, do. no, this is going to be Mungo, Jerry, and Rumble Teaser singing about themselves. And then Jillian Lynn was an asshole. And she was like, well, if they're going to sing about themselves, I'm going to give them the hardest choreography while they're also singing. <laughs> Doing yeah. like double cartwheels well, with each other. Well, it's also fucking crazy because it do- it's one of those things where you know it's so hard because it doesn't look hard. And that's a testament to the people who do it. Yeah. I mean, there there are a couple things in that choreography that I'm like, that is fucking hard to yeah. do. Yeah. Oh, my God. The w- control. Oh. When when Rumple Teaser grabs Mungo Jerry's abdomen and they cartwheel together. Yeah. So her legs are his arms and his Yeah, yeah. They arms. do like, the double cartwheel. Yeah. That is so difficult to do. Yeah, in a straight line. Yeah. Consistently. And they do that after Also, the, the thing... Oh, you know what really gets me is in... it, And I'm speaking only to what's in the filmed version mm-hmm. uh, because I know it's changed a little bit because actually what you hear in the score today, like if you were to listen to the soundtrack from mm-hmm. the Br- Broadway recording, it's actually still a little bit different than what ended up in the film version. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, what's on the Broadway recording is not them singing it. No, it's, 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 it's Right, right. But, um, but I even mean in tempo, like in structure. Yeah. It's a, it's different because they, you know. It's a little slower, I think. In the film? No, in the, in the No, cast it's faster in the, in the, rec- in the, in the soundtrack. Recording? Because he's because he's by himself. When, also, and recordings tend to go a little faster anyway. I've in my mind it was slower, but maybe because I don't have the visual component. Yes, I think on the recording it's faster because he's also he's the only one singing it, right? When yeah. you when you have it in the filmed version, they're introducing themselves and there's two of them, and so your mm. brain so they slow it down a bit because they're in because he goes uh, when he's like Mungo Jerry and. Rumple teaser, like there's yeah. more, there's more space where he's like Mango Jerry and Rumple teaser. That's know. fair. So 
That being said, my favorite move that they do in the number is in the film version is when they are both literally like on their ass, but like in a, yes, and With they their legs, their out. legs up in an, in the air and slowly using only one supporting hand mm-hmm. in perfect syncopation. Hear that sound, guys? That's me pissing myself. When the family assembled for Sunday dinner, their minds made up that they wouldn't get thinner on Argentine joint, potatoes and greens. Then the cook would appear from behind the scenes and say in a voice that was broken with sorrow, I'm afraid you must wait and have dinner tomorrow. The joint has gone from the oven like that. Then the family would say, it's that horrible cat. It was Mungo Jerry or Rumple Teaser, and most of the time they left it at that. Mungo I also Jerry think it's like the most cat-like, to be honest. Like I think it's it's, it's like, mischievous. It's mischievous, but it's like it also like I I find that the choreography really works in that number. Like I think the yeah. choreography really works across the board, but there is something extremely cat-like more so in that number than in yeah. others. Like I I'm not sure that the gyration of Rum Tum Tugger is very cat-like in that number, but I mean maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But maybe. you know what I mean, but like there's something about them the mischievousness of the number the fact that they're like a little they're like petty thieves together mm-hmm. and then their choreography is is really cat like but as we said is not a two on the nose of like we're a cat we're not licking our paws or anything yeah. like that we're not i mean truly if the entire show was supposed to be realistically cat like they would just be knocking shit over all the time while making direct eye contact with you yeah oh i'm not supposed to knock over this glass in the you don't have to include this but in the the video essay i was absolutely dying at when she's she's talking about this very exact thing of being yeah. like the movement's too on the nose like yeah. they're they're it's too cat-like um and she does a zoom in on uh robbie fairchild in the background behind mm-hmm. judy dench and he's literally just going yeah licking his lips and all that <laughs> she's like what the fuck is this yeah it's <sighs> so okay the movie we talked about it a little bit but we'll talk about about it a bit more since it's become such Yes. An iconic, like, bomb of a film. Yeah, it took a one step up from the butt of the joke of just musicals in general to... Yes. And in fact, it might have even improved the reputation of the stage show. Correct. Because now people are like, listen, it's not as bad as Correct. the movie is. Like, I it, agree with yeah. you. It's not made people go like, oh, I guess there was something about the stage show that works. Because the movie took so much about the stage show and misunderstood the assignment. Especially because yeah. I want to put this very plainly. That the cast of the film is a talented cast. Yeah, for sure. I put all of the blame on Tom Hooper. I agree. I will say that, and I guess this is in print. I will say this on record. It's Tom Hooper's fault, all of it. Um, as Lindsay Ellis calls it, Hooperian whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which he Tom, Tom Hooper does not understand what whimsy is. He doesn't understand magic. He's all about quote unquote realism, or rather, what his version of realism is, mm-hmm. and he takes all the things about the show and translates it into a realistic frame. So the best example I can think of when the trailer first came out and everyone's like, why do they look so weird? Mm -hmm. I said, they digitized the stage costumes and everyone's like, no, it's not the same. Like it actually is. But the difference is that on stage, the costumes on stage are actually quite ingenious when you think about it, because it's similar to Jillian Lynn's choreography. Yeah. Where it's this, 
great hybrid of like the essence of a cat but, but still not also- cat li- not too cat like it doesn't look like you're watching a person in a cat suit no you're watching it's it's the essence of a cat but also still clearly understanding that's a person i'll give you the example of um victoria the white cat's outfit mm-hmm. she is wearing a white like skin tight um, like was it lycra um yeah the unitard leotard yeah, yeah uni- un- unitard bodysuit going from toe to you know uh neck covers her whole body and then she has two white uh leg warmers on her legs and two on her arms mm-hmm. and then her uh and then she has you know a, a headpiece with with little bits of uh fur ear. and ear and then her makeup which covers 90 yeah of her face but not all of it and then her tail is basically just like a little white rope yeah it's like very clearly a belt yeah and so you you were given all the elements of a cat without it being so trying so hard to be realistic that you're like this is uncanny valley or so far in the other direction which apparently the original production when it first opened was much more like these are clearly human beings like less makeup the outfits were less all-encompassing yeah yeah they were a little bit uh dingier if you will yes when they got to broadway they're like let's spruce up <laughs> yeah we're like we have a little bit more money now mm-hmm. and maybe uh, make people buy into it a bit more by uh beefing it all up and it and it works it's that it's that really uncanny hybrid of like clearly it's an actor but also i get all the essences of a cat combined and then the movie's like well you know that's what they looked like on stage so let's just do it with cgi and then they just look like an alien yeah yeah well and also it's like i i think what tom misunderstood the assignment in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. but going back to his exact quote or whatever you had found about like he wants to make it realistic it's like i would argue i would say to him does anyone go to cats to embrace realism yeah to be confronted by the world like no no that's not at all what it is no not at all it's cats dude hal it's about cats it's about cats my friend yeah and i've talked about this in the john krauss episode the thing that truly 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 bugged me Mm -hmm. because we all joke cats is about a is about a cult and they're like which one of us gets to die and Everyone's always like, huh, they murdered the Grizabella thing. In the stage show, when she goes to the heavyside layer, it is clear to the audience that this is a real thing. Because a tire, a thing that is stationary, that does not move on its own, lifts off the ground. Mm-hmm. And then the sky opens with a magical claw that accepts her. And we're like, oh, this is like, this isn't just in their heads. Like, this is something that happens. Yeah. The movie. And you have not seen the movie. I have not. And you have not seen how she ascends to the heavyside layer. They're in a ballroom. They're in an abandoned ballroom. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I don't mind that so much. But they put her in a chandelier that's tied to a hot air oh, balloon. Oh, yeah. And then she... I, I've seen yeah. clips. Yeah. Which, and part of that is a reference to the, to the original poem. Yep. Yeah. They go into a hot air balloon. But they put her in a hot air balloon that they light up themselves, which lifts off the ground. And then she just goes into the clouds. I was going to say, this could easily be misconstrued as them genuinely just murdering her. Right. I know yeah. what you're saying. You're There's, like, it's not. Yes. There is a very, very brief, very subtle moment was once she goes into the clouds, like a brief imprint of a cat face appears in the clouds, like almost like a lightning 
thing. Okay. And it, it's like truly blink and you'll miss it. I didn't notice it the first time. I noticed it the second time when I watched it for John Krause. And I was like, okay, now I see it. But like 95% of people aren't going to see that. I'm it, sorry. I'm just too busy laughing at the idea of like it is a cult and they just sacrifice somebody by shut yep. putting them like fucking Moody's Point. Put mm-hmm. her in a, in a hot air balloon and they're like, all right, see you later. I'm sorry. Did you just say Moody's Point? I sure the did. Amanda Bynes Dawson's Creek spinoff? Correct. Moody? Are you telling Anyone who doesn't know Moody's Point, it's an Amanda Bynes, Amanda show. Sketch. Uh, sketch, kind of. yes. And her, her it's it's them doing the Dawson's Creek, like, uh, you know, everyone's moody, everyone's sad. And Amanda Bynes is moody. Her whole thing is that her mom, like, disappeared in a hot air balloon. Think and, like Amelia Earhart. Yes. Except she's still alive. Yeah. And, and... The joke is always, she's like, I wish my mom were here. I wonder what she's what she would say. And then they go to her mom in a hot air balloon. She's like, Moody, Pee, where are you? I need to pee really, really bad. bad. Yeah, it's, yeah. So anyway, I, <laughs> so now do you want to, I'm like, I just, they're like, ta-ta. And it's just Jennifer Hudson in a yep. <laughs> hot air well, balloon. So the thought I always had was there's a South Park episode where they go to SeaWorld and the attendant the employees at SeaWorld are bored and they decide to fuck with the kids mm-hmm. and they use the sound system to make the kids think that Shamu is like actually an alien from an- from the moon and he's like I belong on the moon they kidnapped me you gotta help me and but the whole episode is the kids like tri- figuring out this elaborate plot to get Shamu into an aircraft to get him back to the moon mm-hmm. which they end up doing at the very end and they look at the moon and like oh, I hope he's I hope he's having the best time of his life right now. And then they cut to the moon and Shamu's on the moon dead. Yeah. And when I watched the movie both times, because you put her in a hot air balloon, Mm -hmm. hot air balloons lift off the ground because of science. You make that happen. There's no magical whimsy about it. Whereas with the tire, like this thing's levitating, yeah. like magic is happening. Then she goes into the sky claw. and disappears into sky her... claw. There's no, but there's no sky claw for her in the oh, movie. Oh yeah, no, yeah. not yeah. in the movie. But I'm saying yeah. back to the stage show. Yes. Yeah, sky claw, diamond sky claw. Excellent. I'm sorry, you're a diamond member of Delta. Grizabella's a diamond sky claw member. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get on whatever flight she's going on. I'll have what she's having. But so. Death. Yes. (laughs) The good death. The movie, no diamond sky claw. She just goes into the clouds. And if you happen to catch it, you see a a cat eyes in the clouds. It's not not even a cat face. Cat eyes for half a second. Great. So all I could think of when I'm watching the end of the movie, because then they're doing the uh, dressing of the cats. Where Judy Dench just directly breaks the fourth wall after yep. they've established that's something they're not doing. Which, yes. Like, hold on to that. Hold, Remind me Holding. of that. Remind me of that. As we're doing the entire thing, all I can think of is they're going to cut to the Atlantic Ocean where Jennifer Hudson has crashed and died. And at yep. the bottom of the Atlantic are 300 hot air balloons with the skeletons of cats. Moody's point. Moody's point. Except Moody's mom is dead. It's that's all I could think of. Yeah. It takes out the magic of it and makes you it's, again by trying to answer all the questions and being like, well, tires don't levitate. Let's put on something that does levitate. It's like, no, stop trying to make me connect all the dots or try to stop trying to connect all the dots for me. It And this is uh, going against what I will eventually talk about with Mamma Mia, where I say Mamma Mia does all the work for you. The movie version of Cats is trying to do all the work for you, but in a way that's, like, logical and not um, theatrical. Yeah, it's not based in what the the show is. Yeah. It it doesn't support anything from the actual... 
and the reason why they took too much liberty with it I mean we've seen it done with things that do have a stronger book is like there is so much room to imagine all of the like to figure out what you want to do to answer all of these questions but the show itself it's like we've said multiple times though it doesn't have to mm-hmm. and so they just were like they were so sure that they would do a a good job of selling this to audiences mm-hmm. by answering the questions for other people they thought so hard they thought really hard gus is the cat at the theater door, his name as I ought to have told you before is really asparagus. But that's such a fuss to pronounce that we usually call him just Gus. He is called so Gus the theater cat. Yes, you wanted to talk about this. Yeah. I was not prepared for how... So, Sophia, who we've name-dropped a few times at this point. Not Coppola. Not Coppola. So, our friend Sophia, who we may or may not have mentioned before in case Matt cut out previous parts, she had a childhood cat growing up named Gus after Asparagus, Mm -hmm. the theater cat. Mm -hmm. And she described to me when she knew I was coming onto this podcast and was going to be watching it and we were talking about her cat named Gus she was like yeah he's definitely one of the more pitiful characters that you meet in the show Mm -hmm. what she did not prepare me for was the how heartbreaking it was I don't know if this is because I'm close to getting my period or what (laughs) but (laughs) like like Gus came out and he's shivering and shaking and I was devastated. I was devastated. Literally, that song is like, oh, this poor asshole. Like, literally, that's what the song is. Yeah. Well, and so the film version does spoil it in a way. Not the, and I mean, like the true film version from the 90s because yeah. it's John Mills doing it because usually Gus is played by. Um, someone in the company. So it's a younger person who's kind of putting on the airs of an older cat. And he also has a giant robe yeah, on. John Mills, devastating. Yes, devastating. He's he was an, he's an older... older and, and the thing is, maybe it's just also too because uh, the film theatrical production, mm-hmm. they got close-ups. They were able to get close-ups mm-hmm. like if, if it were a, a film. Mm-hmm. And so you could see his age through his makeup as well. Mm-hmm. And he and he had the shakes mm-hmm. and it was too much. Like I don't do well with old people to begin with. Sure. Like notoriously when you and I worked at the restaurant, there is a story that goes when I was a hostess when I first got to New York, there was an older couple that came in and the it was a, a man and wife presumably probably in their mid to late 70s and she was off to the races while she was getting sat to her table and her husband like got his shoelace stuck or something and was just a few feet behind and he literally goes wait for me and I had to step off the floor and wipe my eyes I was so sad (laughs) and that is a whole discussion for me to have with my therapist however Gus the theater cat. I was not expecting that. I had more of a cathartic moment with, with Gus, Gus the theater with, cat than with fucking Grizabella. Yeah, with memory. Well, and so. And maybe that's just a testament, like you're saying, to John Mills. But also, credit words to, to Andrew Lloyd Webber. 
people talk about how bombastic he is as a composer. That mm. is a simple fucking tune. And he absolutely he knew when to say when. And it's all it's quiet. It's controlled. And it's the tone of it really is like. I hate to say this. It sounds so um, like such a disparaging remark, but it's like visiting with someone in an old folks home. No, right? absolutely. It's like you when you read like it's very smart in the sense of like when you reach a certain age, it's almost like life simplifies. Right. Mentally, mm-hmm. physically, you go back kind of to basics. So the fact that this number is really pared down in a, in this world that he's created that mm-hmm. is bombastic and loud and exuberant and exciting and like act very active to then come to a moment where there's almost this like collective pause that you have to just like the simplicity in it is very reminiscent of the kind of the idea of like end of life right yeah and it that's why i think it's like truly so sad so yes that is a credit to his writing and with guys gus and grisabella share a similar mentality which is that Mm -hmm. they are both in the latter part of their lives and the best of their life has uh, already happened. Yeah. Where they differ a bit is that Grizabella is aware that the best has ended and that she can't ever go back to it, but she has a dignity about it because she's like, I've I've grown from it and now here I'm here I am and I may be at my lowest, but like I still have my dignity. Gus has kind of lost his dignity. Yeah. Because he's still living in the past. Yeah. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking because he's not like Yeah, it's like he shit his pants. Yeah. He's <laughs> Yeah, he's there's not, no dignity there. That's no. what he's pitiful. Yeah, he's not he's not feral. He's no. not um, and he's not even like um, old timey like get off my lawn. When he no, has, that would be funny when he, when he has the whole bit about like these cats aren't trained like we were. Yeah, it's, he's not like these dumb cats. He's like they're just not trained. Yeah, I'm I like, know. Why it's won't so they sad. It's, it's so, so sad. Oh, it's gorgeous and then of course growl tiger on the broadway production happens and you're like well that ruined all my my yeah yeah <laughs> yeah face but so it actually it it works really well that it doesn't happen anymore it's in the show they do it because it obviously it's played by a younger actor and they want to show gus in his prime at one Correct. point and now they do the peaks and the pollicles is his like production number mm-hmm. uh but there is something to be said with that film version where they don't give him that and you just get that moment of him at present and it, and he doesn't even begin it himself a lot of the songs in cats start with people singing about them mm-hmm. it is very um the video i send you the sideways one that you'll watch eventually he talks about how like a lot of them are similar to gaston and beauty and the beast where it's like lafu singing about, about and yeah then it's you another sing- character singing about the character you're watching yes. and they're all and they're all songs that are like, here I am, here I am. Whereas Grizabella's stuff is all like, here's what I'm feeling. Yeah. And that is sort of what makes her different. Even Gus, like, it's never about what he's feeling. It's about who he is or who he was. And it's so beautiful when, like, the other cat, I don't remember her name, yeah. introduces him. And it's very, like, I have the history. I take care of him. Like, he's so sweet. And everyone just, like, melts. It's... <sighs> For all the moments in Andrew Lloyd Webber shows where you're supposed to cry, it's like Avita, usually when someone's dying, Avita yeah. dying, Judas dying, yeah. Isabella dying the good death, when the Phantom's like, Christine, I love you, uh, which I recently rewatched in preparation for that episode, and it hasn't made me cry. In fact, it's rather triggering, and I'll talk about that. <laughs> I'll talk about that in the Phantom episode. But this, the thing is that this is the number that actually makes me cry. Yeah, it's it's very weepy-inducing. I also, I wonder if it might, like, if I saw it live, if I would have that reaction. But there was something, when 
when again what's whatever her John name Mills. is oh, oh the, the other cat yeah 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 good old what's her nuts um <laughs> i think it's jelly lorum maybe yeah yeah jelly lorum jelly jelly lorum jelly lorum i yeah. think that's her yeah great. i have the list of all of them great i well i mean i don't blame you um when she starts off the song and john mills was just sitting there like you know shivering mm-hmm. i was like did they get some poor older actor to i didn't know that he was gonna sing mm. because i i was used to the for the formula at this point where it's like some sing about other cats but they don't actually sing and yeah. then something and so she gets like a good chunk of the way of the song through and before he even says anything about himself and that alone like her singing about him I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And he's just sitting there like. <laughs> like <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. And then it's just a terrible imitation of what is a devastating performance. No, it's you want to know what it is. It's the unassuming elements of it. They're sure. not telling you to cry. They're not asking you to cry. It's so just very simple. And that's the stuff that really gets me. Like, I. So I did not cry in Dear Evan Hansen when Ben. What? No, I'm kidding. Well, I haven't seen it. I, 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 and I saw it twice. I saw it in DC and then I saw it right after it opened. And like, I do think it's a solid show. And Ben Platt like turned his heart out for that, for that performance, which is really impressive. But like, I didn't cry during Words Fail. You know, I don't know when I cried was the second time I saw Matilda and Jill mm. Pace was playing Miss Honey mm-hmm. and she sang My House. That devastating because she wasn't playing it pitiful she was so steadfast about her about her resilience and her pride in this cottage that she's been reduced to and my god i was not expecting it i fucking sobbed like a baby like a baby and it was my second time seeing the show and lauren ward was gorgeous in the role beforehand there was something about the way jill pace did it that just like personally connected to me yeah for sure ah there, there is something to be said for like that moment of like taking a step back where you're like, oh, this is going to be easy. And then you're like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. I can't breathe. I can't. It, it's the things that take you by surprise. You go in thinking you're yeah. going to bawl your eyes out. You're not going to. Correct. Like, I didn't know anything about Violet, really, except for like two songs when I saw it with Sun Foster. Yeah. And the moment she said, look at me, no one will look at me. I immediately started to go. <gasps> yeah, no, no, for sure. That, I- those are the moments. Also, there is something there is something to be said just in general, like the philosophy that sometimes boiling down like your conflict in a show or your moments in a show to like a very simple issue is sometimes the most powerful stuff like i don't know if you've have you ever seen the movie uh the bicycle thieves yes i have okay i was watching the movie bicycle thieves with tyler and um the conflict in that movie stems from something a very very simple problem Mm -hmm. that movie is devastating yeah. And I was like, it is, it's spectacular what, like, sometimes if you can really take something so simple and when the stakes are very high, but the premise is very simple, it's like this man needs a bike in order to do his work, in order to provide for his family, and the bike gets stolen and then has to confront his own humanhood of what, how, how far is he willing to go in order to live his life and confronts things within himself and his ego and all that jazz. But what a simple premise is like, I have bike, I have work. My bike gets stolen, I have no livelihood. And it's like the 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 whole movie is the trial and tribulation about finding a bike. And it, it shouldn't be so upsetting. But the end of that movie where 
spoiler alert for this very old movie, he ends up trying to steal a bike from somebody else Mm. and gets caught. Mm. And then he has his little son who witnesses his dad try to steal a bike and kind of loses his faith in his in his hero, in his father, watch him stoop to this level so low. And the movie ends in the saddest way possible, which is that they're walking through the crowds. There was this great bicycle race, actually. Mm -hmm. And he's holding his son's hand and he's just weeping into his it it literally into his hat over his actions. And you're just like, I I couldn't help but cry. Mm. And it's the movie itself is so formulaically simple and it's just it so i just think there's something to be said for in musicals when you get those moments that are can really bring you back to really like abcs of this is these are the stakes this is what we know about the character this is the conflict here and how is this character resolving it it can be like chef's kiss of just like the emotional catharsis and it's usually not in the moments that you think it's going to be in it's in the nuances of humanity correct to go back to what i said the hubris the hubris go back what i said about the come on it's every pixar movie yeah Yeah. well so going back to miyazaki for a second yeah absolutely anyone who has not watched kiki's delivery service fucking watch it first of all it's on hbo max all the miyazaki films are what i said it's beautiful it's beautiful it's on all the miyazaki films are on hbo max if you have it I do recommend watching it with the dub. It's a great dub cast. It's Kirsten Dunn, circa 1999. How are you not going to watch it? Um, yep. I mean, the du- the subbed version is also very good. But again, watch it dubbed because that way you can sort of buy into the world first and then watch it subbed the second time around. But essentially, she's a 13-year-old witch. And when you're 13 as a witch in this movie, like you go to a town that has no witch and you are to like find a trade and find your way in the world for a year before you come back home. Why? Never explained. It's Miyazaki. Very cats. And she goes, and she doesn't really have any skills as a witch other than flying, and she uses that as her trade. She finds a place to live. Uh, she works for this bakery, and they let her, you know... Because uh, the uh, the baker's pregnant yep. and can't get around on yep. foot. Yep, exactly. You know it so well. And they let her live in the attic, but she has, you know, she buys her own groceries, and she's living off of, like, pancake mix. Uh, she has her little cat with her, and because, you know, as you said, Baker is pregnant, she can't... Uh, deliver stuff Kiki offers to deliver stuff on her broom and then from there she becomes she creates her own delivery service and so she flies all over this city which is uh, a fake European city it's like a combination of yeah. like Paris and San Francisco and Tokyo yeah it's, and like a seaside situate kind yeah. of situation but so what happens is that Kiki eventually loses the joy of flying because by making this her business it's become a chore and no one has had any appreciation for her uh, and what she does, no one says thank you or anything like that. They're just like, oh, you're late. Oh, you're early. Oh, I don't want this. And she does. There's this great moment where this old woman decides she's going to make a, a pie for her granddaughter's birthday. It's like a herring and uh, her, it's a herring and pumpkin pie. Yeah, yeah. And the oven's broken and Kiki helps her with the oven. And they like she puts like her whole day into helping this old woman and her friend make this pie for her granddaughter. She then delivers the pie in the rain. And the granddaughter's not even like, who are you? She's like, oh, I don't like this pie. Why does that's that grandma- right. I and, forgot like, about has this. no appreciation for it. And like, that's the beginning of Kiki's depression. And Kiki can't really fly much anymore because of it. And then she gets called for a job at the old woman's place again. And it turns out it's not even a job. The woman made her a birthday cake, not knowing when her birthday was. And she said, I made this for you. Let me know when your actual birthday is and I'll make you another one on the actual day. And it's a brief moment where Kiki just looks at the cake 
she has a moment where she's about to cry mm-hmm. and then she doesn't and she pulls herself together and she like the joy comes back in her and it's in that brief moment where she sees the cake and she's about to cry that ruined me yeah and if it were a lesser film they would have had her cry they would have had her like do this whole big thank you it would have been this whole big scene but it's the subtlety of that moment the nuance of humanity that got me and as you said it's when you're least expecting it it's not when you're told to cry it's when it just happens yeah and also crying is not necessarily an indication that something is great it's a personal chemical reaction to things yeah but something that's pretty consistent is like we all cry at the moments we least expect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also just to Miyazaki it up. Have you watched Spirited Away yet? That's the last one I want to watch because that's supposed to be the big masterpiece. And I really want to hold it off That's end. interesting to, to hear. Okay, so I That's what everyone has said. I love it. It's my personal favorite. I have a lot of history with that for sentimental reasons. It's something mm-hmm. my dad and I bonded over at a young age. But... Uh, so I'm not ruining anything here, but there is a moment with the with the female protagonist mm-hmm. in which uh, very much like a lot of the, she finds herself in this kind of larger than life fantastical world that is ruled by spirits. Um, and there is this iconic scene where she gets to a breaking point. It's pretty early on in the film where she's so overwhelmed and she's just trying to figure everything out for herself and kind of come to terms with really all that has led her up to this particular moment in which she really hasn't taken the time to recognize the traumatic experience that she's been having. And so there is this great scene in which she just kind of runs through this kind of like field and she wants to find a moment for herself to just be fully by herself and I can't remember if she already had it with her or a character gives it to her but they give her this like beautiful fluffy dumpling and she just has this moment where she's quiet and she's by herself and you're with her in that tension in the moment of watching it and she just takes a bite and the food instantly like the connection that people have to food and Mm -hmm. comfort the first bite she just like pours tears and sobs while eating food and my whole life my like cathartic moments is like it feels so good and like cathartic to watch somebody like simultaneously be like I'm really strong and I have to take care of myself through openly weeping right now and in just enjoying this meal that reminds me of the things that feel like comfort and just like and sustaining myself like she's like I gotta sob this out because I have to process this information but uh, I also have to take care of myself and feed myself to keep going. And there is something very real in that that we've all experienced in the appellalelogram that we've been going through. So, I mean, it tells you something that Ponyo and Kiki's delivery service are my two favorites so far. Oh, and they're I'm the And they're battling way. out because Kiki moved me a bit more. But something about Ponyo just was so delightful and engaging. Totoro is my first intro to Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. So that has like a special tug in my heart. But I did own both the VHS of... Totoro and Kiki's delivery service. See, I the only one I knew as a kid was Kiki, which I never watched, but because I'm a Kirsten Dunst whore, I knew that she did the dub for it. And so I, it was always on my brain, but I never actually had watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did learn the theme song for Ponyo in Japanese, by the way, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> Ponyo, 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 Saka, no, no, no. All that's right. All I, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, but that ties back into Gus, where it's, this quiet moment, this human moment, this yeah. really just like 
private. Yes, that's what it is. It's a private moment that we feel almost ashamed to be watching. Yeah. And we connect to so hard because there's there's very little else in Cassidy you can connect to as a human being. That's correct. Yeah, I think Gus feels the most representative of like something you might experience Mm-hmm. In, on a consistent basis in your human life. Yeah. I mean, I do relate to the horniness of McCavity. Of just, I mean, who doesn't? Of singing about a man that I hate, but I want to fuck or who fucked me and then Steals left me. Steals his giant cat and takes his kidney and then we get him back in two minutes like it almost never happened or was important. <laughs> it was just a thing that happened. It was a blip. I'm obsessed with that. That was one thing I did want to address, which was that... They have the whole like sirens and alarms and they're like, McCavity, McCavity. I love the way that Demeter's like, McCavity. Oh, yeah. There's some really great line readings. Mm -hmm. Um, No, is they all go like, they're all doing their like, McCavity, oh no, type of thing. Mm -hmm. McCavity comes in looking like a fucking goblin, (laughs) literally takes like a, a net and is like, Ha ha! Mm-hmm. Gets Deuteronomy and his little like flying monkey minions essentially mm-hmm. uh, sweep him away, and everybody is so upset for which they've they've built up old Deuteronomy like like this huge character, and they're like we love him, we like we run up to him and we hug him. He gets fucking thefted. Everybody's like oh no for all but fifteen seconds, and then everyone's horniness overtakes them, and they're like instead. Of being nervous about our patriarch. We're going to be horny for approximately four minutes. Well, Amanda, to go back to what you were saying, they were taking a reprieve from their grief and eating the dumpling. Ah, <laughs> uh, they're like, we need to connect with something that's really <laughs> riling up in me, which was like, man, he was really sexy. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you watch that clip with Jillian Lynn and her dancer, when they're, when she's yeah. teaching her the choreography from McCavity, the inner monologue is, the man was wonderful when he made love to me, but I hated him. Yeah, that was... <laughs> that is literally what Jillian Lynn says to her dancer. It is that reprieve where it's... it's it, it is... The song happens because it has to happen, obviously. Yeah. It's it's a poem, and they've been talking about McCavity, and it's them telling the audience who McCavity is. He's a ginger cat, and he cheats at cards. But it, And he's never where the scene of the crime is. McCavity is not, not there. there. And then he comes back to troll them again. He like pretends to be Deuteronomy, and everyone's like, it's Deuteronomy. And Demeter's like, it's not. It's McCavity. I know. I always know. She's the one who's always going, McCavity. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's great. And then Mr. Misopheles makes Maca- uh, makes Deuteronomy appear again. McCavity's never officially defeated, other than like Monkestrap fights it for a second. And yeah, like, no, he literally he's just kind of like ah, and then leaves. he's like, and oh, I thought I could do this a bit longer. I guess not. Off I go, yeah. off to Provincetown. Jeté. <laughs> McCavity Jeté's off to Provincetown, and then Mr. <laughs> that's Misop- actually that's that's it. That's the plot. And then Mr. Misopheles and Rumtum Tucker buy a timeshare in Fire Island Pines. I love it. Um, yeah, it's. It is a weird song in that respect, but I do enjoy it. I just, it's not really an issue with the song, just more of like... The plot device. Yeah, where I was just like, the guy you care about just got fully kidnapped, and then you're all like, I -hmm. feel sexy. Anyone Uh, else feel turned on right now? (laughs) That was pretty hot. You want to know how I know you're not gay, Amanda? Is that I relate to that so hard. (laughs) I just had a trauma, but I'm weirdly turned on. (laughs) Does anyone else feel this way? I mean, guys, I know that we're in a panorama. I know that we're in the middle of a Panera Bread, but like, anyone else want to fuck? Like, is it just That's literally what? Is it just me? Is it just me? Yeah, and Ooh. also I was like, 
I I saw this in the uh, the video essay. Yeah. Um, where she's like, also, what I don't love about the movie is its heteronormativeness. The erasure of the homosexuality, yeah. Yeah, but I would say that's even supported in, in, in the musical a little bit, in the sense, in the sense of like, McCavity is only sung by the, the female identifying cats. Sure, her her homo erasure in the video essay which is it's Lindsay ellis's video for anyone who wants to go watch it oh yes please why it why is cats is i think the title yeah it is uh it's more about how like the mistopheles rumtum tugger connection yes, is no absolutely. longer there uh the stage show it's a little more fluid with everyone's relationship yeah when and, like, they have the giant jellical orgy yeah and like bumblerina and demeter who are the two lead singers in mccavity they have a connection that's like both sisterly but also a little like they probably have Flirty. done stuff yeah <laughs> One summer. (laughs) One summer they went to the Cape and some things happened. Actually, this is a really great time to uh, pitch your your film. My film? Um, Home is a Place Called Bethany. Oh, my God. (laughs) I forgot about that. How did you forget? Because I've made so many. Okay, I... Okay. I need you to. I need you to find a way to put that in one of these. No, I can. No, I. I know exact. I remember the words exactly. So when Amanda and I used to work together, I would create fake movie trailers that I would often center the audios of, with full music underneath. With, yes. So I will. We're running long. I don't know if I can care. We're getting to the end. I swear. <laughs> this is the fake movie trailer I made for Amanda called "Home Is a Place Called Bethany." Was it Claire de Lune playing? Yes. Claire de Lune is playing. Imagine this. Uh, Matt will enter it now. Yes. It was a time of innocence. A time of secrecy. Two women with a forbidden passion would defy the ads. It is a tale of joy. A tale of heartbreak. A tale of forgiveness. Nev Campbell, Amanda Zafred, <laughs> and Academy Award nominee Mene Driver in Home is a Place Called Bethany. Coming this fall to the Selected Theatres. <laughs> it's been maybe three years since I've done that. Yeah, it's amazing that you. No. Word for word. And I, I have like four others that I said. Yeah, to. Kathy not- Masterson's Sticky Hands, which is a children's book. Yeah. From Kathy Masterson, the author of the best-selling children's book, <laughs> Sticky, Sticky Hands. <laughs> so this is all to say, Cats opened. <laughs> <laughs> so this is previews the whole time. <laughs> this whole time. No, we've been talking about the show and all of our other thoughts. I don't mind it being this long. I don't care. I'll trim some stuff out, but this series yeah. has been long by nature. I don't care. You're like cats. You're either on board or you're not. I don't expect anyone to ever listen to these episodes like in one sitting. This is like, you know, multiple train rides. The show opens October 7th, 1982 at the Winter Garden Theater. Reviews are weirdly positive. They're like begrudgingly positive because they're all basically like. They're like, I didn't want to like it, but I did. Not even like that they liked it. They're like. I didn't really like this, but I can't deny that there's something about this show. Mm. Um, and remember, like, this is before it became the thing. It was like, at this point, it was just a phenomenon in London. It was not a worldwide thing. And everyone kind of, all the critics were basically like, you can't deny. Frank Rich was the only one who could really pinpoint what it was, which is what he said that we were talking about. He's like, Cats doesn't have a thought in its head. I can't even tell you this is a good show or that it's even, like, well put together. Mm-hmm. 
it takes you to another world that theater is supposed to do so well, but rarely does. And especially like it's the early eighties, which is considered like the dead man's land of artistry in Broadway at that time. Like, yep. and part of this is also because of the AIDS epidemic happening Absolutely. and, and uh, killing off so many of our amazing choreographers and writers and performers, some super well-known like Michael Bennett and some, uh, you know, far less known half the, the male cast of the original company of cats yeah. Uh, unfortunately succumbed to AIDS, which is uh, terrible. Skimbleshanks and Mr. Mistopheles are two that I can say off the top of my head. But that's to say, when it opened, you know, we were kind of starved for this. We had Dreamgirls and Nine in 42nd Street, but like it was not um, the cornucopia that it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so Frank Rich was able to say like, listen, I know what you're all thinking. If you're like a hardened me, uh, uh, Jade in New Yorker, he was like, it's not the next chorus line in terms of quality, but it will transport you and maybe you'll have a hangover afterwards, but my God, will you have a great drunk night? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of thing. And then uh, the advance doubles from 10 million to 20 million, which in 1983 was Un- huge. Yeah. yeah. Unheard of. We're talking like $40 top ticket price. It's doing, Cats became the first broadway show to do the kind of business that movies were doing it Mm -hmm. became truly a billion dollar industry yeah uh unto itself and that started the trend with all the other mega musicals yeah like commercial musicals right yes internationally Mm -hmm. recognized properties it was nominated for i believe uh how many tony awards uh 11 tony awards one seven including best musical wow that's can you name me any of the three other musicals it was up against what year would this have been? This is 83? the 1983 Tony Awards. Oh, no. You're forgiven. This is not a great year. Oh, no. Um, 83. It's 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 really a bad year. There's only one option that I would think uh, you would what, at least... Sunday? No, that's the no. next year. And that's the thing is, after the 83, we have the 84 Tony Awards, where it's Sunday in the Park with George, Lacazio Fall, Baby... Um, tap dance kid in the rink, like a really oh, like good a year. solid year, a solid eighties. Uh, wait, 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 wait. I do want to just try. Try. I really don't think you're gonna get it. Smile wasn't until the nineties, right? Eighty-seven or it came out in 86, 87 Tonys. I'm well, li- literally looking around your room. I'm like, oh, the smile script on my on my dresser. Yep. Don't worry, that'll pop up again in the Lamez episode with suddenly Seymour. Uh, as I've recorded that episode already. <laughs> Uh, I I don't know. Do, can you give me a hint? Um, one of them is a Tommy Toon musical with Twiggy, Gershwin. Oh, uh, it's, it's you want to say it's me and my girl because it sounds similar, but it's not. Not oh gosh, it's not the boyfriend. No, but no. that's a good guess. My one and only. Oh no, Twiggy did the movie version of the boyfriend. Yeah, my one and only, which was a pretty solid hit. Um, and if Cats had not come out that year, I think my one and only would have probably won Best mm, Musical. Interesting. The other two, one is a magic musical with Cheetah Rivera. Oh, uh, it's a character from King Arthur. Magic, King Arthur. <laughs> um, my ass is going sword in the stone. But he's in the sword in the stone. I. I that, that. What's his What's his name? Say his name. Uh, uh, Say his name. 
Say it. <laughs> Say it. Begins with an M. I know. Rhymes with twirling. Merlin. Oh, God. There you go, you stupid bitch. <laughs> Merlin, which actually had a pretty solid Tony performance. Take away my BFA. I don't oh. know any of this. First of all, if that's the, the criteria. The threshold. For, no, for I'm just saying. Knowing Merlin or not, none of the cast of Mean Girls would have ever been on Broadway. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and then the fourth one is not black and blue. It's not It Ain't Nothing But the Blue. It's Blues in the Night. There was no There was not chance a world. No, not in a world. hell I could have named you any of those three. I'm very aware. I told you you weren't going to. I like to believe in myself sometimes. That wasn't my lack of belief in you, babe. That was my lack of belief in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dark time. I remember 1983. Christian Slater performed on the Tony Awards. Dark times. No, uh, the only other show this year that was like kind of a big deal was a revival of On Your Toes, which get on your <laughs> get on your toes. <laughs> On Your Toes had a weird poster, I remember, because when I went to professional children's school, we had Broadway posters all along the hallways, and we had one for On Your Toes, and I knew nothing of the show, and it was of the 80s revival, and it looked like an 80s music video. Yeah. And I was like, this is a 1930s musical? Craziness. No. No. Uh, but yeah, those are the seven, seven Tonys. It won. It was the longest running show for a time, which also added to sort of the New York hatred of it because it overtook a chorus line and everyone's like, right. we were happy with the chorus and line. And now the show about a fucking cats. Yeah. Like it, we were happy with the chorus line being the longest running show and now it's fucking cats. How how long was it? But what, like the threshold for the longest running, it was like, I know it was in the teens. It was like. Oh, uh, cats ran for almost 17 years oh no sorry take that back 18 it ran, no, almost 18 years 17 and a half years where was the threshold where it made the leap over 1997 i believe so it beat a chorus line which was at 15 and a half years okay. so it it outlasted it by about two years and then uh nine years later phantom took over and then after that mama mia no mama mia never overtook it uh when cats so after cats had closed Les Mis got the closest Les Mis became the second longest running show Mm -hmm. then it closed and then Phantom became the second longest and then it was cats then became Phantom cats Les Mis and now I believe it is Phantom Chicago Mm -hmm. and now and then Lion King then cats then Les Mis uh and then uh I believe it is Wicked and then Mamma Mia. Or unless Wicked has now... No, Wicked hasn't overtaken Les Mis yet. Wicked's about to overtake Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Fun times. Uh, f- last couple of questions for you. Uh, yes. Round Robin here. Far too many notes for my taste. If you had to cut one song out of Cats, what would it be? Just one for today. Uh, do you have a song list in there? <laughs> I can tell you off the top of my head. Yeah. Jellical songs for Jellical Cats. The name of the cats. I don't count that as a number, uh, by the way. Gumby Cat, Rum Tum Tugger, uh, Grizabella the Glamour Cat, Buster for Jones, uh, Old Deuteronomy, Mongo Jerry and Rumple Teaser, Jellicle Ball, Memory Part One. Probably Buster for Jones. Oh, I enjoy it. Well, I, I don't I know. Like, I like or the old Deuteronomy. Like, uh, yeah. that that is actually probably the old Deuteronomy. Like, Just have him enter. I'm just like, yeah, he's here. I don't need to know about him all yeah. the time. I hear you. I see you. I respect it. Next question. I dreamed a dream cast. Who would you like to see in this show? Ooh. Who would you like to punish? The- <laughs> 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 
senten- sentence them to a life of cats. Of cats. Who would you like to punish? Um, that's really hard because this, again, as we've discussed mm-hmm. in various forms, this is not, and uh, this has been supported in a lot of the videos you had sent me, this is not a cast for, like, a celebrity vehicle no. dealing outside of, like, Grizabella. Sure. Anyone um, you would like to hear sing memory then. Okay. Oh, man. Um, I didn't think you were going to ask this question, so I didn't prepare. I Okay, so hear me out. Mm-hmm. Don't know dancing skill level. Mm-hmm. This is not... Okay, this could go a few ways. The actress <laughs> I'm thinking of is Ava Noblezato. Okay, but hear me out. That's this like is... the third time she's popped up on this podcast. Yeah, it's no a testament to her, it's a it's a te- testament to her talent that she just keeps popping up. Yeah, so here's the thing. So there's a few ways that in this that this could go. So when she's older, a Grizabella. Mm-hmm. That's that's one. I'm not saying like tomorrow I want her in Cats. When she's when she's older, she would make an animate or like. I don't know. I think she's short. She'd so. make a great McCavity. Yeah. No, that's not what I'm saying. I, mean, I know what you're saying. And then and then depending on her, I don't know her dance skill level. In terms of, but I would like live for her playing, uh, what is it, like the youngest cat, the one who does all the actual, like the echoing in memory. Sure, 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 sure. I think it's like, I think that's Jemima or Jemima. Jemima, Jemima. Yeah. Jemima. She loves TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's not the best. You know what's weird? I just thought of it just now. I'd like to see Annie Golden do Grizabella. Oh, I think she'd do a good That's a job. good choice. Ooh, yeah. Ah, love her. I want right. to see Jackie Hoffman play Jenny Annie Dots. And that's it. Mary Testa. Ooh, Mary <laughs> Testa. I'd like to see her Grizabella. Mary Testa would make a great Let's do it. Grisabella. Um Okay. Rainbow High Spectacle. Rainbow High. Do you think this show needs production value to work? Yes. <laughs> End of story. I was gonna go for it. I was like, no, you one hundred percent need uh yes spectacle last question for you personally on an ultimate rating of one to ten one being no 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 way which is um from six i know what that uh, not everyone knows six and ten being now and forever which is the tagline of cats how would you rank cats one to ten on my per on my personal just 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 Ooh, i hate saying this but like a three or four that's where I thought you were going to go. Yeah, it's a three or a four. It's not my favorite, and that's okay. Yeah. It's something I'm working on. It's it's the Matt Coplick in me. I, I personally really struggle to, like, share an opinion if I don't feel like it's going to be, like, fully echoed or, mm-hmm. like, validated by others, which is something I'm working on with my therapist. However, especially, like, opinions on, on certain things. Like, sure. I won't share them if I'm, like... I'm not sure this is going to go over well. Right. I'm okay with being, like, you can like cats... I personally don't like it, but I can respect it. Mm. Like, I, I've reached a good spot with that. I think the only reason why I'm so outspoken about my opinions on theater is because I think about it so much. And my personal opinions of, like, why I think what I think and all the things that lead me to it. So when I discuss it, I have things to back it up. And if you disagree, 95% of the time I'm okay with it. If, like, there are maybe five or six things in movies and theater in total where I'm like, no, you're wrong. Everything else, it's mostly like... We can disagree, but like, let me tell you where I'm coming from. You tell me where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, I usually am just not met with the exuberance in, like, I enjoy, like, I like this. Like, I like talking (laughs) to people who also have big opinions, right? But it's like, I could never just be like, you know what? I don't really like cats. 
and and everyone's like how dare yeah 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 no anyway i'm at a i'm like a four or five with it myself uh there are moments when it overpowers me where yeah. i where i um surrender and then times where i'm like yeah no it's what it is yeah uh amanda where can people find you if you want them to find you uh you can find me on the instagram at i'm amanda hawkins uh you can also find me on the twitter at her amanda justy i promise i will have matt spell that for you because i'm not going to spell it right now um who told you i could spell uh, i don't know i just assumed you could i'm so sorry to put you on the spot just because like i can read doesn't mean i can spell um yeah and then you can f- find me uh walking around sunnyside <laughs> that's true uh john was neighborhood actually yeah yeah fun times uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. That's only on Instagram. I do not have TikTok. I do not have Twitter. Oh, I forgot my TikTok. Yeah, what's your TikTok? At Hawkwing. H-A-W-K-W-I-N-G. Hawkwing. Hawkwing, baby. If you like the podcast, uh, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, we love a good five-star review. If you disagree with me, tell me so, but put it in a five-star review. Check us out next week as we cover a play. A play. A play. A play. Miss Noises Off, one of the funniest things ever to hit the stage with alum of the pod, Adam Ellsbury. I'm trying to think who we should have close us out. We've done Betty Buckley. We've done um, uh, Elaine Page. Who else could we do? Nicole. Oh, right. Miss Nicole Schuschinger. Schuschinger. I was also thinking maybe Lori Beachman as she was Grizabella in the performance where they uh, closed out, uh, where they where they hit longest their- Longest running? Yeah, hit their milestone. All right, fierce. Running. Well, do we do Scherzinger or do we do Beachman? Let's do Beachman. She's, she's, okay. she's more Broadway. Scherzinger's never been on the Broadway. Um, fair. Fair. All right. So, yeah, here we go with Miss Lori Beachman taking us away. Catch you guys next time. Take us away, Lori. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.